Thanks for tuning in to High on Horror. I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. We got a special one here for you today. We're talking with the one and only Brian Usna. Hell yeah. Brian is a legend in the industry. He needs no introduction. But if there are some of you out there who are unfamiliar with who he is, he's produced Reanimator from Beyond and Dolls. He had a whole run with Stuart Gordon and they were just incredible movies. And he directed such classics as Bride of Reanimator, The Dentist, Return of the Living Dead 3, and of course, Society. Who doesn't love a good shunting, am I right? I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) We're going to have a career-spanning interview with Brian today, and we're reviewing The Dentist. This will actually be our first two-part episode, as as there's just simply way too much to fit into one episode. Uh, you know, and it's fucking mail time. We got some questions to answer that some of you listeners wrote in to us. All that and more today on High on Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. I'm already lit, but let's start this episode off right by baking. It's time for Strain Wreck, the segment of our show where we discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on on this episode and discuss current events. Yeah, I got a... This is the end of the purple train wreck. Okay, damn, awesome. I don't even know what the shit was. I was just, I just had it was, the uh, there, but I'm some of that stuff that came from Colorado. Colorado. <laughs> um, okay, well, uh, well, get, though you got a nice little bowl packed over there. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get it going. Um, two parter, you got, you got to go hort. <laughs> uh, so the trailer for season three of Joe Hill's Lock and Key dropped. Joe uh, Hill, another week of Joe Hill. Another week of Joe Hill. Okay, um, he's blowing up like his dad did. Uh, but um, the season three uh, trailer for Lock and Key dropped, and uh, it the season premieres August tenth on Netflix. And uh, I'm not too big a fan on the. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the show. Honestly, it, it didn't do the comics justice, and it gets too ridiculous at times. Uh, I'm kind of glad to see it end, but the problem is that the trailer looks terrible. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to to do the last season. And uh, AMC fucked up Joe Hill's Nosferatu as well. I mean, that show just was not good at all, and that was a really good, like, weird book. Um, uh, Scott Derrickson seems to be the only one that can really get Joe Hill right. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't know fair. if you Lock and Key fans out there, you know, if you're uh, never if really, fans of the never show really got or not, into it. Yeah, if there's any listeners out there that are fans. There's a lot know, of AMC shows, I'm not just talking about 10th. horror, that it's either, like, I feel like they're either really good or just, like, meh. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you haven't watched either, right? You haven't watched Nosferatu. That's what you just said, correct? No, you told me they messed that up. I yeah. was excited to try to watch that. And, and you haven't like, seen nah. Lock and Key, nah. right? Yeah. Sometimes I heed, I, heed, I heed your advice and stay away stuff like The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I've still never seen it because <laughs> you told me not to. No, and not uh, only you, when I mention it to other people that I haven't seen it because my friend told me not to watch it, they're yeah. like, oh yeah, listen to him. I wouldn't watch it. No, it's uh, it, it's uh, <laughs> I appreciate that you that you hold what I say in such high regard. Not to not to toot my own horn or nothing like that, but I mean, you, know. you and I kind of have similar tastes, and if it's something that we're both really excited about, and then like, and you're not like, oh, I didn't like it, like The Witch, you went, oh, I didn't like it, but you didn't go, oh my god, this movie's horrible, like don't waste your time, yeah, like that's different than than like. Like, like I said with The Witch, where I still watched it because you just went, oh, I, I didn't like it. But, yeah. you, but, but you weren't like, oh, it's terrible. You shouldn't even like even bother watching this. So you feel that if I do say that. If, if you it's, tell it's me warranted. it's something that I was really interested in and you tell me like, 
it's terrible like don't even waste your time i'm like okay like i don't i don't, I don't feel like you would steer me wrong on that i appreciate that and you know that's that's the truth though you know i wouldn't but uh yeah but but uh Lock and Key was a comic book series. I remember like collecting the comic books. Oh my god, man, it was a long time ago. I'm not even gonna look it up because I haven't opened a soda in the middle of the fight. I know. I was about to say Josh gonna be mad. <laughs> um, got caught a mouse dog. But it's uh, it's about basically this like family moves into this house and they find these keys and they like. Is there the, a lock? The keys go into the back of their heads and they turn the key and like it makes them be able to like do do weird shit and go crazy places and kind of like time travel i guess you'd say and even bounce around from place to place you can like turn your one of the one of the ones is like you can turn into a ghost and like leave your body and like kind of like float around so it's it's like that it's like more fantasy than horror but uh they they kind of did one of those things where they kind of like crammed a bunch of shit from all the comics into like season one and then just started making up a bunch of shit that didn't happen in the comics so the show lost me but if there's any fans of you out there who like the show you know um any fans of Lock and Key out there? The season comes on August tenth. Like you can I tell, said, Drew, and, he's uh, an idiot. <laughs> and uh, hopefully you like it. I'll probably be watching it, even though I'm dreading it a little bit. Um, but I'm not trying to shit on anything. I'm just giving my opinion. But also, uh, the poster and trailer for Pearl, starring Mia yes. Goth, and directed by Ty West, hit. Uh, this Delaware? is a prequel. <laughs> this is a prequel to X, and it looks fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to see it. It comes out September sixteenth. And uh, I'll be there to see it just like I was with X. The trailer is available on YouTube. We might even be able to get it up on our Instagram yeah, for you all I, to check out. I, uh, you were, uh, you, you saw X in theaters. I did not. I wish I would have. Actually, I don't feel, it, I don't feel like it hurt the experience, I'll say. It didn't hurt the experience. It would have been cool to there. see it in theaters. But it wasn't one of those movies that you're like, oh, you got to see that in theaters. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I just watched the trailer for Pearl. I had been waiting for the trailer to come out, and it totally went past me that it already came out. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I just watched the trailer now before we recorded, and, uh, yeah, I'm into it. And I really like, like, she really kept the Pearl voice. Like, you could really hear young Pearl. Like, obviously, she played Pearl in X, but mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like it's just, she made the voice just younger and doesn't sound so tired we're looking like for that Pearl, X factor. Cause uh, yeah, that X factor. Cause Pearl was like 197 at the end of that movie. <laughs> she wasn't that old, but she was old enough to blow her hip out from using a shotgun. But you know what? She wasn't old. What she wasn't old enough to stop doing was fucking. Okay. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. <laughs> she was slapping them loose skins. And then, uh, our boy almost had his heart attack. Anyway, <laughs> something else that I wanted to talk with you about <laughs> that I forgot about was that, uh, on Screenbox now, uh, uh, the story of it, the making of the 1990 TV movie with Tim Curry. Um, it's a two-hour documentary. Our boys Fuzz on the Lens, who were on our show, um, they did the interviews for it, and it's available oh, wow. on Screenbox now. I have not watched it yet, but I just remembered just now. I was like, there was something I'm supposed to watch this weekend that I just remembered. It's that, and uh, it's if Tommy Lee Wallace involved in it at all. I'm not sure, but I know that like all the kids and Tim Curry's on it, like new interviews, like okay. new. Um, it's it's a it's a whole like two hour making of documentary that like, interviews all the people involved. Uh, so I'm sure Tommy Lee Wallace is involved because he does cons and shit. But uh, it's on uh, Screenbox. Screenbox is I guess kind of the new competitor for Shutter. They're they're uh, they they have a lot of movies that Tubi has. 
but they you know don't have the commercials and um okay it's not it's not such a bad streaming service it's uh they're just getting off the ground but it's free for the first month it's i think six dollars after that so for those of you that want to check out the story of it you know get your free subscription in and you got like a month to watch it all right well uh, i definitely want to check that out though yeah i mean it's it's uh you have my information so (laughs) (laughs) log in and watch it (laughs) you'll probably watch it while you're at work yeah. What are you doing at work? Watching a movie. All right, <laughs> oh, man. Well, what do you got going on in horror history? This week in horror history. Okay, this week in horror hiss. Horror history. We got phenomena. Phenomena. <laughs> the fucking. Oh, who's that? Phenomenon. Is that the Muppets? Then I don't know what the hell you're talking Damn, about. Dog. Get get on my level. Anyway, it's 1985. Yeah, uh, Phenomena, also uh, yeah, also known as uh, Creepers, um, starring Jennifer Connelly. This is one of those movies that Argento really went far out with. Like he was really like at his uh, peak of just testing how far he could push it, like creatively, creatively, and and just strange. And and it was just, it was just kind of strange. Jennifer Connelly talks to bugs and uses them to essentially help her catch a killer. There's monkeys using straight razors, a deformed kid, goblin and Iron Maiden music, and Donald Pleasance in a wheelchair. Um, I'm gonna get you baked one day and make you watch it with me. It's a good movie. It's really good. Like you, you hear like again, you on paper you go, huh? Watching it you go, huh? But it, it actually works out. The other thing is, yeah, this is one I haven't got to, but I've always seen, and I was like, Argento and Jennifer Connelly, like that's just not a parent I would ever think. Yeah, would, right. Would happen. Right. Yeah, so it's been one I've wanted to get to. And then uh, we got The Ruins. I had to do it. The Ruins from 2008. <laughs> um, this is based on the novel of the same name by Scott Smith, and the book was so good that I made my wife read it, and she loved it. Um, Did you, like, force her? Like, sit down and read this book? <laughs> no, I, 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 I just, she kind of picked it up on her own because she liked the movie so much. She wanted to see... Uh, she was asking me about the book after she'd seen the movie. I told her how like it was similar but different. She read it. She loved it. And uh, the book is is uh, the, the movie doesn't do the book justice, but the movie is really good. It is like it's definitely solid. And uh, 1988, we have the Blob. I never uh, I never saw the remake. I'm just familiar with the uh, with, with with the OG. Oh shit! You never saw the 1988 remake? No, oh, I haven't seen God. the 88 one. I've only just seen the original. This is so. This is one of the things about having like a friend like you and like having a co-host like you because there's so many like i get that's kind of every time you introduce somebody to a movie like that you know like it's it's almost like i get to rewatch the movie and you're an 80s horror fan so that that movie's gonna blow your mind that's gonna happen we need to get a review out of that um the, it's an excellent movie right up there with the fly and the thing the, this with the fly and the thing to me the three greatest remakes ever the phone there's, the, there's a phone booth scene a scene where a dishwasher gets pulled into the drain uh, there's so many iconic and awesome scenes in this movie. I thoroughly enjoy watching it when I do watch it. And, uh, like I said, I'm, that's, uh, we're definitely going to watch that together for sure. And, uh, knowledge nug, Jack H. Harris was a producer on both the original 1958 film and the remake. Uh, we went to where the 58 one was filmed to see Joe Bob. Yeah. And, and then they didn't have any of the fucking blob merch. They had a whole display of blob merchandise and it wasn't up for sale because it was like late and they were closed off because of the Joe Bob thing. And I really had my hand in my pocket, man. <laughs> I, had my, I had my wallet in my hand. I was like, let me get one of those damn shirts. You know, let me get, <laughs> let me get that blob shirt. But it wasn't happening. And, uh, I was, I was trying to think of like good horror remakes and I thought of one 
and I was like, does it count? It's not really, well, I guess now I think about it, there's two ways you could go with that. I was going to say Dracula. You could say that Dracula was the sequel to Nosferatu. Well, I guess it's still the same thing. Kind of, yeah. And I, I guess they're not really sequels. They're just different interpretations. I'm too high. Like a, I was thinking of Hammer Dracula movies. Yeah, they're kind of... Those are kind of like... Well, I guess we are talking about remakes. Jesus Christ, I'm too high. Yeah. Yeah, so like the Dracula, I mean, you could say the, the one with Bela Lugosi was a remake, the Hammer... But but you're still gonna take the blob over over both of, both of those. Yeah yeah. Um, okay. I, I would you know like I I can see that's actually good you know and, and I mean Count Yorga that's also kind of the vampire story and dude Blackula is really good everybody like laughs at Blackula because it's black exploitation and I thought that it was going to be ridiculous and Blackula is really good so if you want to look at any of those as all like reboots or reimaginings or remakes they they kind of are in a way so you kind of have a very good point you know like there's like it's kind of like Batman right now how Ben Affleck's gonna be an Aquaman man too and then you got robert pattinson it's like kind of, you kind of have like like a lot of like the same characters floating around and shit you know what i mean so it's kind Rob of zombies halloween uh, <laughs> um i would have turned it down but but we couldn't get spider on the show so i don't have to worry about being offended yeah well i always <laughs> i always bring up though and i've brought it up to you before a remake that always seems to get overlooked and is just uh, just amazing is willard huh? willard with crispin glover man like these all of these remakes actually outdo to me, like they outdo the originals, and to me, that's what a remake is. A remake should be something where someone goes, "Hey, we couldn't do this properly back then, but it was a great idea and concept. Let's do it again with the right effects." That's what a remake should be. That's what these movies did. They just took what was there and made it what it could have been back then, what it should have been, and that's why they work. So, like, I just I don't consider any remake that's like on par <clears throat> with an original or less than an original to be a good remake. It's got to be. To be a good remake, you need to like actually be necessary, and you have to actually improve on things. If you don't, you're just a cash-in, and I'm not a fan of cash-ins. Like the, the thing, that fucking... Was, the, you know, the, was, were you just going to say that? I was going to say the thing. Uh -huh. You brought that up, and it's actually ending right behind you, but I was going to say, is that the best remake? I mean, The Fly's got to be close. The Thing is probably my favorite remake of all time, yeah. I mean, because that's just legit one of the greatest movies of all time. One of the, Not just horror, but of all yeah. time. Great, my favorite alien movie, have to be. You know what I mean? So yeah, I would Ooh, say that that's yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Oh, I don't. Well, yeah. Oh. <laughs> did, I, did you just dethrone Alien? Did I just did I, I just make the damn, thing dethrone when Alien? People for always you? tell me what's your favorite Alien movie. I don't know why. I never think of the thing. I always just default to Alien. Right. I always say Alien or Fire in the Sky. But yeah, when you think of, uh, I guess it really is the thing. Yeah. All right. Fuck. Because, like, the Alien's in, like, my top ten, so, I mean, it's right up there with it to me. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, yeah, if, you, the if, thing that's if not I had fair to only choose one, mm -hmm. yeah, it'd be The Thing. Well, the thing that's not fair about The Thing, though, is that The Thing is horror and sci-fi because of the alien aspect, so it manages to dominate alien both. Alien is horror and sci-fi. It manages, but that's what I'm saying, but it, but it manages to, like, dominate both. It's not just, like, what's your favorite sci-fi movie, because that's probably The Thing, too. And what's your favorite <laughs> horror movie? The Thing. The Thing kind of took that spot for both, like, Fuck. you know. Is it that or one of the star original trilogy Star Wars movies? Well, you know, I'm gonna. I'm, I mean, it's oh. sacrilegious to those star hardcore. Well, Star Wars I guess Wars I guess those. There, I guess you consider there's more space movies and sci-fi. Well, I mean, they're. I mean, space movies are sci-fi, bro. Yeah, you know, lay off the lay off the peyote. Damn, but then like Interstellar's <laughs> up there too. Yeah, we're just going off on a tangent. Just like, what else do we have? Any other movies this week? I don't know. No, we just rambling for no reason. We have a big one. 
that I... F oh, shit. <laughs> God damn. I am so high. Uh, Jason Lives, 1986. Actually, on the day this episode comes out. Today, August 1st. So this will be the 36th anniversary. Yeah, if you want to know about the 35th anniversary, you can go back and listen to, like, I think it's episode, like, five. Yeah, one of the first episodes of our show. Uh, go listen to you it. You got we Tom McLaughlin. You got uh, CJ Graham. And then uh, we'll throw you a spoiler alert in there. Later, you got... Uh, yeah, bang. Vincent Glastafaro, <laughs> yeah. And then later on down the line, we managed to get Tom Matthews on for a Return of the Living Dead episode. But John and I managed to get our questions in oh, about sure. Jason lives with him as well. So when, uh, Drew, when Drew told me we're going to talk to Tom Matthews, I said, well, there's no doubt I'm asking him Friday the 13th Part 6 questions. I don't care if we already covered it. Yeah, like I'm not even going to say anything about Jason lives right now because all I'm going to say is if you want to know what we think about it, go listen to that episode. And I mean... The questions we I'm proud of that episode. The questions we asked, the conversations we had. I feel that if you, I feel that anybody who who likes that movie is going to learn something new. I don't mean to sound cocky, but I mean we kind of really we we uh, we kind of dug that one out. Yeah, it was a good time. I uh, like I like I've said I know it's not your favorite, but it is like above the original. Like you asked me my favorite Friday the Thirteenth movie. Period. It's Jason Lives. Like, 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 you know, Halloween, the question's always for most people, mm -hmm. most rational people. What's your favorite Halloween besides the original? That's not my caveat with Jason Lives. Like, that is, it's not, what's your favorite Friday the 13th after the original? It's just my favorite period. To <laughs> yeah, me, it's everything that. Jason should be. It's fun. It's brutal. I mean, you really don't have necessarily the blood in it, but. I mean, it's everything I want from a Jason. I mean, you don't Jason get the movie. boobs either, though. That's fair. <laughs> You're a dick. Why? Why? Why you gotta bring that up? Like we got close enough. I, I count it. <laughs> close enough. Close enough. I count it. <laughs> the movie's so good. I said that, and I don't even know what I mean. <laughs> uh, what were you saying? The movie's so good. I was like, the movie's so good. That uh, it, it constitutes as having a legit nude scene, even though there's no nudity. It's so <laughs> good. I'm going to put a nude scene in there. I don't my, need it. I don't mind. need it. All right. We've been rambling on for You've way been too long. On. Oh, just me. Okay. Anyway, I think it's time to get on to Puff Puff Ass, the segment of our show where you listeners send us questions through email at highonhorror420gmail at gmail.com and through Instagram, Facebook. I don't think we've, again, ever gotten any from TikTok, but I'll include it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter at High on Horror 420. All right, so Abby from Jefferson City, Missouri asks, what stores do you guys shop at for horror merch? I can never find anything horror and uh, anywhere I go and mostly resort to online shopping. Um, I also resort to online shopping. There's like three stores that I go to. And most of the time, I walk away without getting anything. Actually, there's two stores, uh, FYE and Second and Charles. And most of the time, I don't really get anything. There's like maybe pop vinyls or a shirt. What about you, John? Yeah, Second and Charles used to have more horror stuff. Um, sometimes, like, again, not a lot, but sometimes you can find shit at Goodwill. Like, I found that oh, fucking yeah. Jaws game. Right, yeah. The, the, uh, and, and it was missing two pieces that have absolutely nothing to do with the game. It's more that score track. 
and they charge five dollars and i looked it up online it was like 40 bucks online for a brand new and i'm like okay so it's missing these two pieces i paid five bucks sweet that's yeah that's crazy i like to go to the goodwill for vhs tapes because people always get rid of their vhs tapes and they always have them for like 50 cents or a dollar and you find some classics in there um yeah i mostly do online shopping uh why can't i think of the place like that not hard uh fright rags yeah fright rags that's probably where i get most of my stuff i like cavity colors too cavity colors are some good ones and uh our second question here is from joel on instagram uh do you like watching movies alone or with people um i'm gonna just continue to sound like an introvert i like watching them alone especially if it's a movie theater like i want to go see horror movies in theaters I'm going to sound like such a cranky asshole, but I fucking hate going with people, man. Like, shut the fuck up when the movie's on. I don't want to hear your fucking commentary. Right, right. Like, fucking people just talk, like, way too much through horror movies. Like, one of the best experiences I've had, like, in recent memory is back when I had Movie Pass. I went and saw it, uh, the chapter one. I saw it three times in theaters. The third time I saw it was on Mischief Night. And I was the only person in the theater. And, like, that was a great atmosphere. Like, I like that. <laughs> I mean, I guess if it's movies I've seen a lot, I like seeing them maybe with, with other people. But, like, okay. if I'm... I don't know. I feel like... I feel like I'm better solitary just taking to the information myself. That's funny because I'm, I'm, like, I'm the exact opposite. I like to watch movies that I've seen before when I'm by myself. And when I'm hanging out with people like you or my wife... I, I like watching new movies because, like, I'm able to, like, pay more attention. I'm more in the moment. When I'm by myself, my mind wanders. You know what I mean? And, uh, like, I just kind of, like, lose focus. So it's usually good to stick to the ones I've seen before. But then once I've watched a, a movie that I haven't seen before um, with, like, you know, somebody, then, like, that movie now becomes something I've seen. So it becomes something that I would put on by myself. But to watch, like, new movies, I like to watch them with people because I feel that it helps me focus more. I feel like I focus better. So like, we're opposite. Yeah. yeah. You you like to take it all in by yourself. You take it all in. Yeah. And uh <laughs> I know I, I get you, you funny guy. Funny guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's get on to our review of the dentist. Brian Usna had already worked on the films that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Uh, by this point, he was no stranger to the horror genre and was a known incredible name by the point of making The Dentist. The Dentist stars Corbin Burnson, who was acting for 20 years before he played Dr. Feinstone in The Dentist. His first role was about 30 years before The Dentist. Uh, he was a veteran actor going into this role. Corbin was known for doing a lot of TV movies and shows, and he fucking cranked them fuckers out. Uh, he Just go to his IMDb page, and you'll see a list of things that he was in, several things a year a lot of the times, like literally like five, six things in one year, movies, TV movies, show episodes. He's had roles in L.A. Law, Psych, the Major League movies. Those Fuck are your yeah. shits, the Major League movies. And uh, uh, he also appeared in roles on soap operas like General Hospital and The Young and the Restless. Um, his wife in the film, Brooke, is played by Linda Hoffman, and uh, this is the only horror credit that Brooke has. Um, she didn't act for very long. She got out of the business. Uh, she married Bobby Rydell, the, uh, the the pop singer, and apparently lived a nice life. Unfortunately, her husband passed away earlier this year. 
Um, but the fun fact, there's a fun fact. Uh, <laughs> wow. <clears throat> what? It's a fun fact, huh? No, it's not a fun <laughs> fact. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's not a fun fact that her husband died. That's obviously a shame. The fun fact is that apparently um, Linda has worked as a cardiac sonographer, which okay. means that she has an associate's degree in uh, a field like cardiovascular technology and uh, echocardiography. I don't know what any of these words mean, but... Uh, yeah, so apparently she um, deals with the heart. Deals with uh, the heart in the medical <laughs> field. So you know that's that's awesome. Um, and then of course you know you got uh, Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruff. <laughs> <laughs> he has a small role in this movie. Uh, you all know who he is. Uh, Virginia Keene plays Sarah, the chick with the braces, and uh, she was uh, also in Ticks from 1993 okay. with Seth, with Seth Green, Patty Toy. Uh, who was the uh, Asian, uh, uh, she played Karen, she was the Asian nurse. Um, she had a small role in Freddy's Night- in a Freddy's Nightmare episode back in the day. What do you think of Freddy's Nightmare? Dude, I've been re-watching it on uh, Tubi, and uh, I'll be straight with you. Out. Like, I caught a few episodes back in the day, and I, I didn't really like think that they were good. It was like bad like TV show acting. Oh, yeah. But what I didn't remember was, I don't think I ever saw it until recently, like for the first time, the first episode of the show which I did, like I said, just totally blew my mind, is the fucking trial of, like, Robert England on this episode and everything as 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 himself before he becomes Freddy on trial. It shows, like, the how, like, he's being, like, up on, up on trial and they're trying to convict him and how he gets off and everything, and then they burn him. And I'm like, damn, I always wanted to see that in, like, a movie. Not the Jackie Earl Haley style, but, like, Robert England style, and you get it if you watch the show. Okay. So that's pretty fucking cool. But, um... And, uh, yeah, um, of course, there's Ken Foray from Dawn of the Dead and From Beyond and The Devil's Rejects and a whole lot more. I love that guy, man. Uh, besides Rob Zombie's Halloween, he's been in a lot of that's, great shit. Damn, that's two mentions of Rob. Well, <laughs> speaking of shit, he's the guy that uh, Michael Myers takes the coveralls from mid-dump. <laughs> and then there's uh, Earl Bowen. Um, you'll, you'll, you know, me and you know him from... You know, a certain certain movie, certain sci-fi movie we loved growing up. Uh, everything I ever see him in, he's a bad guy. He's an and, asshole. Uh, he has 290 credits to his name. Jeez. And a lot of voice work on cartoons like Dexter's Laboratory okay. or Dexter's Laboratory, want... however you want to say it. And video games like uh, Metal Gear Solid and more. But uh, anyway, my point is this cast is stellar and they all do a great job. There isn't an amateur in sight. One thing you can't say about this movie is that it's badly acted. John, take us through the movie. All right, here's the bowl for you. All right, word. And, uh, yeah, The Dentist is a 1996 American slasher movie directed by Brian Usna and written by Dennis Paoli, Stuart Gordon, and Charles Finch. And uh, it has a kick-ass score from Alan Howarth. Oh, yeah. I mean, he always does a good job. And uh, Dr. Alan Feinstone, played by Corbin Burnson, is a dentist with uh, what seems like a pretty successful practice going on. He's a pretty upscale practice as well. Uh, it's his wedding anniversary. Alan gets ready for work, and he finds his wife, Brooke, played, uh, as you said, by Linda Hoffman, cheating on him with the pool man, Matt, played by Michael Stadovich. And uh, after Matt and Brooke finish the deed, Alan retrieves his pistol. He follows Matt in his car. Now he's at the house of the neighbor, Paula Roberts, a friend of Brooks, played by Lisa Sims. 
Alan's spotted by Paul. He makes up some bullshit story that he's having a surprise party for Brooke. And then uh, Alan watches his Matt Dick stay on the neighbor as well. Like, Jesus Christ, this man just going house to house, fixing pools and getting laid. Like, he's living life. Anyway, uh, Paul's dog attacks Alan, and he shoots that in self-defense. Like, he fucked that dog up. He did. But that dog did fuck his arm up, though. Yeah. And then uh, he decides it's time to go to the office. Uh, it's a seriously intense start, and we haven't even seen him do any dentistry. That, yeah, I know. And uh, to me, Dr. Feinstone is like a precursor to Patrick Bateman. Yeah. The successful yeah. businessman who's super uptight about everything. The way he bitches and complains over a stain that you can't even see on his shirt. And then he bitches about his cufflinks. And yeah. he's a miserable bastard. And, and uh, Yeah, I kind of left some of those little small details out. But yeah, that is kind of important. Yeah, and it's not right. You know, you can see how someone married to an asshole like that from like, the female's perspective would want to break. They'd want to break it off, you know. But, but my question is, why do women in these situations always fucking downgrade? Like, if you're going to leave your rich dentist husband... You know, who has this big ass like house and this pool? Don't settle for the fucking greasy pool boy. Like, what the fuck? How is like if you're gonna like cheat, like move up, better your life? Like, that's I don't. It's down. I mean, you know, maybe he's doing what she need. Right. I mean, you know, but uh, anyway, uh, Doctor Feinstone reminds me of Jack Torrance as well for the reasons that Stephen King didn't like Stanley Kubrick's uh, film because he seems unstable from the start. And all he needs is that little push to push him over the deep end. He doesn't seem like he's a, a he's, he's normal, and then he all of a sudden snaps for no reason. Like you see, the Doctor Feinstone is like half a half a taint hair away from being pushed over that edge of just breaking, and that's all it takes is for him to see, uh, you know, him to see his wife uh, doing the deed, as you put it. Yeah. And uh, Alan's first appointment, he starts tripping balls, but he's not even doing any drugs. And uh, he hallucinates a child has, like, rotten teeth and then accidentally stabs him. He fucks that kid's mouth up. <laughs> he does, man. And it's hard he, to watch. And then he tries throwing out lines like he wouldn't sit still. I kept telling him to sit still. And then <laughs> my favorite, he's like, this, that kid's spoiled. <laughs> no, nah, bro, you just put a drill right through his gum. That like, kid sat there like a little angel. He didn't do shit wrong. Yeah, like, you had him all calm before you even started. But yeah, like, dude, he fucked that kid's mouth up. And that, and the movie makes you so uncomfortable with, like, the close-ups and them teeth. <laughs> uh, he ends up down in a lot of these, like, yellow pills. And uh, he ends up loopy on them yellow jaws. Yeah. He ends up calling his wife, and he's, like, talking about his business, like, how they first got started. And then I love the part where the call ends, and you just get a cut from her, and then a cut to him. And it just goes with her going, asshole, and him, bitch. Yeah, the resentment is ever-present with those two. <laughs> As Detective Gibbs, uh, played by Ken Forey, uh, investigates the death of Paula's dog, Alan sees his second patient, a April Rain. Who I mean, that just sounds like a straight porn star. <laughs> I swear to God, I thought it does. Amber Rain is a porn star, so that's where it goes. Yeah, April Rain just... I don't even know who Amber Rain... I know the name. I don't even know what she looks like. But April Rain, immediately, I thought... Porn star name or a douche brand? And uh, play, okay. <laughs> played by uh, Krista, Krista Sauls. Uh, how about her manager, Steve Landers, though? I mean, we got a young-ass Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> yeah, man. And Mark Ruff. Just Mark be, Ruff? Mark Ruff. He's just being a dick in this movie. And uh, Alan trips out again. He thinks April's he his wife. He trips out again. 
I mean, what else is a C? He hallucinated, man. He tripping balls. He is. But he's he all even, sweaty. He's all well, sweaty he got them shit. yellow jaws in him now. Yeah, right. And uh, he thinks April's his wife, which uh, this does things end badly here. <laughs> he ends up in the hallway uh, undressing her while she's unconscious. Uh, he takes off her pantyhose, fondles her, and then he starts choking her. I guess he remembered that she cheated on him. <laughs> yeah. And uh, April starts to wake up. Alan snaps out of it. He hides her pantyhose. He tells Steve she's still dizzy from the nitrous oxide and then doesn't let her stay in the room. Like, he tells her, uh, he well, he tells Steve that she's going to need a couple minutes. Name another doctor that would tell someone to just carry someone from a room that <laughs> hasn't fully woken up. Yeah, right. And then, I mean, Steve puts two and two together. He returns and punches Alan and threatens her with a lawsuit. So Alan ends the day early, sends his staff and patients home, including Sarah, a teenage girl who wants to have her braces removed, uh, played by Virginia Keena. Keena? Mm -hmm. Whatever. Close enough. (laughs) Sarah's the person I feel the worst for in this whole movie. All she wanted was her braces off and to throw a party. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say real quick... um, it's funny that you said that about, you know, like name it another hospital where like they just have you carry someone out and you're like, that's uh Oh, Dexter. That's kind of, uh, that kind of happened to me and I was pissed, man. And like, you know, my wife and I were pissed cause my son Abel, he, uh, he was having like, all of a sudden he was like crying, like hysterically that his hip hurt. And like, I thought that we were, thought he was joking and he wasn't, he was like legit, like he couldn't put pressure on it. He was like, we freaked out. So like, you know, it was late at night. My wife took him to uh, one of those med express places and uh, they gave him yeah, an x-ray. Med-Express. They gave him an x-ray and everything. And the x-ray came back and these motherfuckers told her that like basic told my wife, you know, that she needs to go to another hospital because they don't know how to read children's x-rays. And, but why did they do it? Right, and like, how, how are you working in the? How is it different from? I don't understand. Like, isn't like the anatomy the anatomy? Uh, you know, I'm I don't sure know. Sure, there's probably but, like some nuanced differences in like but, reading it. I'm sure. But yeah, but why would you have done it anyway? And uh, and they didn't even have wheelchairs, so my wife legitimately ended up having to carry my son out of the out of the fucking Med Express back to the car. And I just thought like that was just unprofessional. I hate those so those uh quick uh just yeah med express yeah i hate those quick medical places that are just you know they fucking suck i remember i had a sore throat one time and this chick legit pulled out a book i was looking up my symptoms to diagnose me (laughs) so um yeah uh, if you can just go to a real doctor that's my point anyway back to the movie um the fantasy uh part where he's uh you know like you were just talking about uh, where he's like fantasizing about his wife, you know, yeah. and kind of, kind of the whole patient rape thing is when I officially thought, like, oh brother, you're done, like there ain't no helping you, and uh, that's the point of no return when you see how out of control he's become in just a matter of hours. And uh, you didn't think it was when he stabbed the fuck out of the kid? I think he was losing it, but I mean, like you're legit, like no, because the thing was he snapped out of it and was like, like having to trying to pull her panties up, panty liners up for, her, you know what yeah. I mean, and like like that was like you're you're literally so fucked up that you're like in the middle of trying to rape somebody right now, like that's you know what I mean, um, but I feel that uh, I feel that when the dog died, that that's when the film like officially became a slasher film, like it's definitely an unconventional slasher film, but there's definitely some slashing and some dental torture, so I mean like I feel like. It's a, it's it, the the few killings that happen, starting with the dog, is what makes this movie a slasher film. Yeah, there's a. I guess the body count's not that big, but I mean, he does torture a lot of people. Yeah. But uh, Alan has a new opera theme room at his practice, and he has his wife Brooke come to meet him. After sedating her under the premise of cleaning her teeth, he pulls out her teeth, cuts out her tongue. Like, wouldn't it be weird? 
if like somebody like they're, they're supposed to be going to dinner and then he's just like let me clean your teeth and he's gonna sedate you like that's just weird like i could see maybe like sitting in the chair just to see like how it feels and like get an idea for it but like to actually get a cleaning like, I, I don't like how it's like a romantic thing too like yeah you know we'll make a night of it come have a time let me clean your teeth like fuck you it's like, no that's not an idea of fun to for eat, me bruh. right it's not an idea of fun I don't put think the, she's going that though put, she might not call him brah you know <laughs> but but uh, put a movie on and give me some food man like don't, don't worry about cleaning my teeth I don't I don't that ain't romantic like, that, keep your that's hands, not what I want to do on my anniversary keep your fingers out my mouth <laughs> Detective anyway. <laughs> Detective Gibb and his partner, Detective Sunshine. I like that's just his name. That's the yeah. only name you get. Is played by Tony Noakes. Uh, arrives at Alan's house the next morning to ask him questions. After the police leave, Matt discovers Brooke, who's still alive but sedated. And uh, Alan stabs Matt to death. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, she, she definitely all gummy at this point. <laughs> and uh, Sarah and Paula are waiting at Alan. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm sorry, waiting for Alan at his practice. And uh, Alan sees Paula first, uh, She, which makes Sarah more upset. Like, I can understand why this is why the only person I feel bad for. Like, she's just suffering in silence. She just wants her goddamn braces off. I know. It's been two goddamn years. Yeah. She just keeps getting bumped and bumped. Uh, so now Sarah's more upset. Paula's saying how good of a job Matt does, and Alan don't want to hear that shit. Because <laughs> he... <laughs> so, uh... He fucks her molar up. Like, <laughs> Tommy Doyle gonna fuck him up. <laughs> she just reminded me of. Tell me he don't, though. Like, he just fucking takes that drill and just hollers that motherfucker Oh, yeah. It, it, the sound, man. Of course you know that's the worst part, that drilling sound. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he just destroys that. His assistant, Jessica, played by Molly Hagan, uh, questions what he's doing, and he snaps out of it again. Just like he just trips out for like four to five minutes at a time, and then he's good. Other than that, he's he's an okay guy. Uh, Alan asks Jessica to finish up for him, but uh, after he discovers, uh, I'm sorry, he Alan asks Jessica to finish for him, but after he discovers she sent Paula home, he fires Jessica, and uh, when she pulls out April's pantyhose and threatens to expose him, Alan kills her. The body count's rising. Yeah, and I gotta say, I like. That earlier in the movie, when she had found the pantyhose, because she's the one that found them, yeah, uh, she shows it to the other assistant. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but we'll get to it. Um, she just like blows it off, like whatever. <laughs> she's like, she's like, she's like, uh, she's like, you want me to go ask him about it? And she's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. Um. Oh yeah. You're talking about the. Uh the nurse that I spoke with earlier, the nurse that I spoke to about earlier, God damn <laughs> I was like, damn, you Patty Toy. To her? You're talking about Patty Toy Karen? Yeah. Her name's Patty Toy. Yeah, she played Karen. That's who you're referring to. Uh, so back at the police station, Detective Sunshine discovers uh, the bullet pulled from Paula's dog only matches one gun in the area. I think it only matched, like, I think they said, like, 50 or something like that sold in the last year, but there was only one in the area. And I mean, that gun was nice looking. <laughs> so uh, I could see Al, Al, Al would probably drop some money on it. Yeah, but I mean, he had money. Yeah. You know? So uh, it matches, surprise, Alan's gun, which we already knew. Uh, IRS agent Marvin Goldman, as you said, played by uh, uh, Earl Bowen. Uh, as most might know as the OG Terminator, uh, as the doctor. Dr. Silberman. Yeah, Dr. Silberman dicking that, too. Like <laughs> yep. you said. 
Uh, he uses Alan's tax problems as leverage. He extorts a free dental exam and a payoff. Here's my thing. Like, I already I said the dude's a scumbag. But um, why would you want to have somebody clean your teeth that you are just constantly pissing off? Like, why? <laughs> like, I just, I, that doesn't sound good. I know, I feel you. Yeah, like I said, uh, the tax guy, like most of the tax guys, is a scumbag. Uh, like I, I said, <laughs> surprise, I surprise, fe- surprise, the tax guy's a scumbag. I said, I feel bad for Sarah, uh, who I don't feel bad for what is about to happen next to him is Marvin. Uh, so instead, oh, yeah. instead of getting the teeth cleaning, Alan tortures him, dude. He just has that. Uh, the thing that bothers me is it's funny, like. Is that thing it holds their mouth open? That Marilyn Manson mouth crank <laughs> going, yeah. Oh, so uh, he gets tortured. Uh, Detective Sunshine and Gib drive to the Feinstein house to question Alan. Uh, after finding Matt's body by the pool, they break into the house and find mutilated Brooke tied to the bed but still alive. Yeah, she. Yeah, she. It's gonna be a rough time for her for a little bit. Uh, with dude, when Alan was pulling her teeth out, just the faces he was making. I know, man. Uh, later, Alan's other uh, dental assistant, Karen, uh, finds Marvin still in the dental chair, and uh, Alan attacks her and then kills her by injecting her with a needle full of air to the to her jugular vein. Uh, that bubble effect was pretty sweet looking. Yeah, it was. Like, you just saw, like, travel under the skin. Yeah. I like how he told her, calm down, calm down. You'll be dead in a matter of seconds. <laughs> like, dude, Corbin Burnson, like I said, like, I grew up watching like major league movies, like you mentioned, and he was always like the nerdy, like preppy guy. And then just like, <laughs> he's, he's still that in this movie, but like, he's got a, obviously a hell of an edge to him. Right. And, uh, Alan ends up finally removing Sarah's braces. Oh yeah. Cause she ended up getting bumped for the tax guy as well. When he got, came and <laughs> she got bumped again, but she finally gets her braces off and, uh, Alan starts imagining her teeth rotting. He pulls his gun. She escapes by smacking him with the dental light. The only person that really ever fought back. Yeah. Dude, she swung that thing and smacked the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah, right? And then she was hiding in one of the dental rooms. It looked like she was hiding uh, behind, like, the nitrous tanks. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Yeah, I believe that's what it was. And uh, she finds a blood-soaked Marvin who attacks Alan. And uh, when Alan recaptures her, Sarah hysterically promises. I thought this was like the one thing that made me laugh where she's like promising she'll brush her teeth three times a day and never eat candy. And Mm -hmm. it keeps going back and forth between her and Alan. And then like Alan just goes, he just leaves. He's just like, okay, I believe you. He just like (laughs) leaves her. And then the two detectives arrive. They rescue Sarah, but uh, Alan's already out that bitch. He was uh, candy. I, I liked her. Yeah. The the uh, office uh, manager played by uh, Jan Hogue. Yeah. Uh, she she inf- like she's sitting there crying hysterically. She's like his wife, such a good family, <laughs> yeah. and like she's just like going through his life, and then it gets to the point where she's like, and a teacher, and they're like, that that was a key point because uh, she mentions that Alan is a teacher as well through like all of her hysterical crying. Yeah. Uh, they follow Alan to the university. Alan uh, still has his gun, and he maniacally instructs all the students to pull all of the teeth out of their patients. You yeah, imagine being in there? Extract them all, or some yeah. shit like that. Like, dude. Yeah, and he just keeps. Dude, no. he just keeps like screaming. Like, yeah. he just gets. Yeah, he gets more of that Jack Torrance as it goes on. Uh, he pulls out the strap again. 
and uh, he threatens he threatens them at gunpoint. Now uh, he hallucinates one of the dental students as Matt and shoots him in the arm. Uh, the detectives burst into the room, but Alan uses a hostage to escape. And my thing is like Alan like let her go at the door. He should have kept her. Yeah, at that point, yeah, right. At that point, you don't got no leverage, dog. Damn, learn <laughs> learn about kidnapping. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get anyway. better kidnapping schools like from Borat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eventually, uh, he wanders into the auditorium where an opera singer is practicing. This I, it was a weird scene, but I really like it. Yeah, agreed. I, I yeah, it was it was definitely like it was weird. It was, but I, and, I, and yeah. it was enough that it wasn't thrown in your face about how much he loves opera. There was just little subtle scenes. Yep. So when this happens, you're you're never like, why does he care about an opera singer? Like you just know, like. This dude is really into opera. Yep. So uh, he's enchanted by uh, this opera singer as he watches her from behind. And uh, he reaches out to touch her and she transforms into Brooke who laughs at him. Defeated, he falls to his knees and he's arrested by the detectives. And now I guess this is kind of where we start with the movie. Yeah, the wraparound story, so to speak. Alan's now in a psychiatric hospital. He's carted off to his regular dentist appointment. The dentist work working on him is revealed to be toothless wife Brooke, who violently uh, fucks his mouth up. <laughs> uh, anyway, I love this movie. The hate this movie got was so ridiculous. Uh, Brian J. Dillard of all movie uh, has one of the worst takes I've heard of this. Okay, he called it a subpar horror comedy about dental anxiety that quote adds nothing new to the mix besides over-the-top images of mouths being desecrated and queasy allusions to the alleged filthiness of oral sex. End quote. What do you mean? (laughs) There was, like, one oral sex scene in the beginning, and it was part of, like, a dream. And it wasn't all that graphic at all. Yeah. And, like, I mean, there was really, like, there's nothing in that that I went, oh, yeah, this is about blowjobs. Like, what? <laughs> I'm not even sure where he got I don't think that it was the, the it. Yeah, and I don't think it was the act either. I'm pretty sure that if she was giving him a handy or anything, that he would still have been pissed off. So I don't really think yeah, it has, it's, like not, the, it's not oral sex specific. And the teeth decay to me was like everything's crumbling around him, so it's decaying. It doesn't have anything to do with oral sex. Yeah, agreed. Uh, anyway, I think Homeboy was reading more into the movie than what was there. Uh, for me, uh, and I brought this up with Brian Usna, but, uh, revisiting the movie today, it feels like kind of a precursor to like Saw and Hostel in terms of the gore and such, mm-hmm. like really close and like, but I mean, there are times where you have that, but then there's times where you don't have it. It has like that Texas chainsaw where you think you saw more than what you saw. Yeah, totally. And, uh, it kind of leaves you with a uneasy feeling watching it several times throughout the movie and uh corbin burnson really takes this role seriously and it shows somebody else easily could have made this such a campy and just over the top cheese um but i mean he really committed to it and i mean it made the movie better for it the score as i said great as well i'd give it a 7.8 out of 10 uh yeah well um tv guide wrote uh, a film quote a film that might have given the marquis de sade a few chuckles the dentist is a splatter film a wash and a tour violence end quote 
And I think that that sums it up great. This is the cruelest movie that Yuzna did. And it's kind of like when we talked to Lucky McKee about how he, uh, he was at a dark point in his life when he made The Woman. And that's why that movie is so dark and harsh and cruel compared to his other films. Yeah. I wonder if that's the case with Yuzna. I'll bring that up to him. But anyway, what I like about this movie the most is that it's told from Feinstone's point of view. So who knows how much of this actually happened? It happened the way he says yeah, or remembers. Like you brought up. Yeah, like his wife might not have even given Sloppy Toppy. She might be completely innocent and this guy just snapped, you know, or maybe it was a hug. Who knows? You know, you can't trust a crazy person to tell you the unbiased truth or truth at all. And uh, everything we see is his version of how it went down, which means jack shit. But I grew up watching this movie. This and Dr. Giggles from 92 uh, were, were big for me. The Dennis is a superior film, though. Uh, again, I agree with you 7.8. And if I did it like that, I would probably give it the same. But I'm just rounding it to 8 because I just go by 0.5. So 8 for me. Uh, and uh, yeah, 8 for me. Great fucking movie, though. And uh, we had to do something for Brian that wasn't... Um, that wasn't the common review and i feel like the dentist gets overlooked a lot but yet everybody yeah. our age when you bring up the dentist they're like oh my god i remember that movie and so it's funny it's time one to of, give it its due Let's it's talk one about of those dentist. movies that even like casually people that aren't horror fans have at least like have vague memories of yes. it for, that are our age like oh yeah i remember something about that movie definitely absolutely um and, uh, well, let me just say now to you listeners out there that there will be no burn and learn this episode because Brian's going to fill you in with enough knowledge for that. Not just on the movie, just like horror movies as a whole. And yes. some, some of the history, the business, I mean, a, a lot not, of not to say we're above people, but like we have a pretty good knowledge of horror history. I mean, we have a segment of it, yeah. but, uh, yeah, he really gives us some horror history just like that i've never even heard of it's amazing we've never had a guest that's been a fan of horror this long like that's been there through the ages to talk about how things have changed so this it's a really informative interview he's gonna give you enough knowledge for that but trust me next week when we conclude with brian Usna and we finish with part two we're gonna have a ton of knowledge nugs next episode all right let's talk to him Our guest today is a legend in the business. He's produced such films as Reanimator, Dolls, and From Beyond, and directed cult favorites, Society, Bride of Reanimator, The Dentist, and Return of the Living Dead, all the movies we've been talking about in this episode. He's the guy that said, there's always this idea that really great horror movies don't show the more horrific stuff. Baloney! I like it when they just go places you would never guess. Welcome, Brian Yuzna. Thank you for being on High on Horror. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to start the, uh, this this interview off proper. Um, before we just started recording, you were asking us about being stoned. So I want to ask you, do you now or have you ever smoked cannabis? Well, I, I certainly, um, certainly did throughout my youth and into middle age. I must say that now that it's legal, somehow I, um, you know, I, I, it, it's not because it's legal, but um, I don't know. It just doesn't. Um, it doesn't thrill me the way it used to. But but I, I keep trying. <laughs> this is some I've trimmed myself, so it's I do keep trying. 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so do you just prefer the stuff that you grow yourself? No, I, I just must say it doesn't. Um, it it doesn't do that much for me now. It did when I was younger, for sure. Um, you know, and um, you know, I think now I um, I drink more than I smoke. Do, do you feel when you used to that it helped you with the creative process? I might have convinced myself of that. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do the, it never did anything for me when I had to work, though. Um, I certainly, um, when I started making movies, of course, by the time I started making movies, I was already in my 30s. So I had had, you know, hippie 20s. I was, you know, I was one of those people who turned on, tuned in, and dropped out in the 60s and into the 70s. And then when the revolution didn't happen, I had to get a job, but I had no, I had not prepared myself for that because I thought, what's the point? Um, so then I tried a whole bunch of different stuff. And when I finally ended up getting into movies, um, that was such a big commitment and I already had um, I already had you know I think three or two kids by then I um, you know I moved to LA and I worked on movies you know I was always on the set but I never you know I would never drink or get high or do anything when I was working but then I did find it um, at least um, pleasant in the I, when I would work on scripts or do brainstorming type of stuff that would happen in the evenings after my kids were put down and um, I'd have the writers come over or whoever I was working with and this would be late at night and then I would have um, maybe a sip of cognac and and some a little a little bit of pot to um, and it did seem like it loosened you up it's kind of like having a drink at a party you know it kind of makes you just a little little looser a little less self-conscious um but you know these days i mean i went to a barbecue um a couple nights ago and and they but you know people my age they buy them pre pre pre-rolled you know (laughs) but that's part of they put out the drinks and they put out the the pot and um, it's and the cigars, you know. I like to smoke cigars, and so I'm trying to. It go to seems that like now it's you know <laughs> it's not it's not what it used to be when it was um, edgy and illegal. Now it's just so normal. I guess is it is it legal in Delaware or not? Medically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so you know. So you know what I'm talking about. The yeah. difference in California is that it's it's just legal, whatever. And they get upset because the pot business isn't growing enough, you know. And it's just like every other <laughs> ridiculous industry, you know. It, um, and there's, you know, it was kind of amazing when they, the, they first made it legal. I, I forget when it was, a few years ago, right? And boom, man, every billboard, every corner had a pot store. You know, it was that was kind of hard to get used to. And when they legalized it, it's like 
nothing changed. <laughs> you kind of wonder, what was the point of all this, right? What was the point of throwing people in jail and exactly. you know, all this kind of stuff when it really made no difference? It's, um, it's just another, another bad habit to have. <laughs> And uh, Drew and I are lovers of, of uh, well, fans of Lovecraft, like yourself. What is it about Lovecraft that you feel drawn to? Well, what drew me to Lovecraft was um, Reanimator. Um, Stuart Gordon. Uh, when I met Stuart, I was looking for a director. I wanted to make a Hollywood movie, and I had raised some money for it. And a friend told me to go see Stewart in Chicago, where he had been directing theater for about 10, 12 years, I guess. And um, he, we got along great. I, I really um, admired what he did in the theater. And I said I wanted to make a horror movie, and he said he had a couple ideas, and one of them was Reanimator. And he already had like a 50-page um, TV pilot script. Now, this is back... This was 84. So this is when, you know, there weren't, there wasn't much cable. There was HBO and Cinemax. And um, then there was VHS. And um, there wasn't, there was no streaming, of course. Um, we, we didn't even have um, fax machines when, when we made <laughs> Reanimator. Um, but the, um, but, you know, it was going to be for like ABC or NBC or something. And I was all into it. I liked the idea of the guy, you know, bringing somebody back to life. That's my kind of idea of a good time. And, um, and I told him that if he wanted to develop it into a feature, then I would, um, I was on board. And we did that within one year, actually from meeting Stuart one, exactly one year later we were shooting. It was, um, we kind of just expanded the story with Dennis Paoli, who was the writer, um, and added the, the original pilot ended with Halsey getting killed, which now is in the is the end of the first act, um, and then um, so we added Doctor Hill and the headless. So we added a villain, and then that you know gave us. A lot more, um, a lot more movie, a lot more story, and so once I, I, I had been familiar with Lovecraft, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was always a horror fan, and I began being a horror fan with um, comic books. The when I was a little kid, I lived in Latin America. I, I didn't live in the United States till I was in high school, but I was living in. Um, in Central America, and I, I remember, the, I think the very first comic book I got was a horror comic, and I'm, I mean, I was like five years old or something, and I, I, was a, I bought tons of comic books when I was a kid, and, you know, back then, you always kept one in your back pocket, <laughs> because you didn't have a cell phone, or you didn't have, all you had was your comic book when you wanted to kill some time, and you'd read it over and over again. Um, and I did, of course, the superhero stuff. Back then it was all um, DC. Um, and, um, but, when I, but I also bought the horror comics. And I'm not sure if they were um, 
the um, EC comics, you know, the Tales from the Crypt and that. Mm-hmm. The or not. Of horror and all that. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm not sure if it was that, because um, this was this would have been mid-50s, um, or if it was just other kinds of horror. But it was horror. You know, it was always some demon or ghost, and, you know, spouses were always killing each other, and there was always some heads getting chopped off. You know, you know how those horror comics are. Um, yeah, and spooky. <laughs> And I think maybe that was the first, my first um, touch with horror. And then the other thing was when was ghost stories. And I, um, where I lived, we didn't have TV when I was a kid. And uh, because this was, say, Panama. And when I was in grammar school, I think they, we got TV in Panama maybe when I was in the middle of my elementary school or something. So there was, and when it came, it was very minor. We'd have it three hours a night. And um, so we didn't have TV. We did get to go to the movies on Sunday, the kids shows. And, but at night we would all be outside on the corner, you know, all the kids playing games and stuff when it got night. And um, there would always be some stories about their grandfather told them or their uncle told them about the grandmother that was buried and came crawling out of the grave, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. monkey's paw type stuff. And that, when you're a kid and you're talking about that, it's really creepy. I don't know. I mean, today you look and you say the story's always the same, big deal, right? But when you're a kid, it seems so scary. Um, death seems so scary. And then to have people walking around that crawled out of the grave is real scary. So there was that. I think when I got into the Boy Scouts, I remember hearing some big-time ghost stories. And uh, we'd go to camp in the jungle, and um, it was a it was a Catholic troop. I was brought up Catholic, and some seminarian would take care of us, and we'd be out under the thatch roof common area in the woods and man he'd scare the bejesus out of you you know it's really scary you didn't want to go back to your tent and i think so i think ghost stories always appealed to me and then when i was very young um we used to go to the movies um on sundays there would be a kids matinee and we would walk we we, my family lived in say pan in the in the Country. We lived in the city, but we didn't live like on a military base or anything. My dad wasn't military. Um, I did get to go to school with, you know, with the on the base or on the canal zone. But when I went home, I went home to, to you know, Spanish-speaking kids. And uh, but on Sunday we would walk to see. It would be one or two movies, some trailers. And some kind of RKO serials like Rocket Man or Batman or Dick Tracy oh, nice. or Captain Marvel was my favorite because he seemed to have all the best powers. He just had to say Shazam and boom, you was a hero. <laughs> Didn't have to have any gimmicks, you know. Um, and then and we'd see who knows what movie it would be. It could be anything. It could be Abbott Costello. We'd see Three Stooges stuff. But 
One time we saw the, they showed the creature with the atom brain. And that, oh boy, that scared me. I didn't sleep that for nights. <laughs> and that's basically a zombie movie with touches of Frankenstein. Um, it was basically zombies, you know, except they were controlled by someone with radio waves or something. I don't know if you've seen it, but it, um, I think I it's 55 them. or 57, something like that. And I always wish that I had been infected by my first horror movie had been something, you know, much more famous. <laughs> but that's the one that that um, that got me. And then after that, it was it was uh, I think it was the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which just had some okay. great monsters in it. And then I kind of then as I got a little older, I learned to have fun watching horror movies. And I think the first horror movie I ever went to that I realized that, man, this is just fun, was The House on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price. That's and on that oh, one, they even one. had, yeah, the theater I went to had two huge kind of cigarette boxes on the side of the screen advertising, I don't know if it was either Marlboro or Kent. And from twice during the movie, from behind the, the box, a skeleton would come floating over. They had a wire rig and this, I guess, plastic skeleton or something it just came floating over the audience. And, and that was thrilling, you know, but by the second time, all the boys, it's all, all boys probably in the audience. Um, you know, they all took out their comic books and started slapping it and <laughs> jumping on the lights. You know, it was, it was just a good time. You know, and, and that kind of got me into horror as fun, that it's a fun thing to do. And, of course, I saw lots of horror movies. They're all the, all the um, you know, all the like, you know, The Tingler and 13 Ghosts and, and those. But then also that's when Hammer started, and that was scary as shit because they, they added color, blood, and breasts. And, boy, you know, <laughs> horror... It's, it's always been tied in with death and sex. And I think when you're a kid, the sex part is almost as disturbing as the, as the death part, you know. So I think in the Seven Voyage of Sinbad, one of the scenes that just, you know, nightmared me was um, the woman that jumps in, the magician puts her in a big urn with a snake. And then they breaks it, and she comes out as, as a woman that is a snake, you know. And that was um, really disturbing. But I think for, for pre prepubescent kids, sex is very disturbing, you know. And then, of course, I got into, you know, Psycho was another huge movie for me. That was scary as hell. And, and then I got into the fun ones uh, in junior high, like... Um, Corman's Pit in the Pendulum and Tales of Terror and all those. But, so I just started going to all the horror movies. Well, um, so that's that's awesome that that's how early you got started in the uh, horror genre, like just getting experience to it and liking it and adapting to it. Um, well, so let me ask you, where do you stand now? What's your thoughts on modern horror films, like A24 films? Do you watch modern horror or are you a fan or not a fan? Not a lot, not not a lot. I, I go to festivals. I, I'm a guest sometimes at festivals, and I'll 
watch movies of the people I meet there, you know. And I watch a lot of, you know, I'll watch stuff. But I must say it might be like pot for me, you know. The older I get, the less I, I, um, I am thrilled by it. I, I, I think I just, I'm just really impatient now. And I've got to, it's got to, it's got to, I used to, you know, when I was a kid, every movie was fascinating, <laughs> you know, every movie. And I went a lot. I used to go to the movies a lot because we didn't, you didn't have anything on TV. You know, today you've got your laptop or your smartphone, you can watch shit out the wazoo, you know. But when I was growing up, you didn't have that. So you had to go to the movie to see something. And I went constantly. Um, but, um, and I found everything fascinating. But now when I watch movies, I'm almost always bored and irritated from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like I've already seen it, you know. And I see, and, and plus movies today are just so message forward, you know. It's kind of like, you just, I just get tired of everything having to be about something Pushing else. agendas, yep. You know, it's, it's like you can't just have a horror movie because it's fun to be scared and see a monster. It's got to really be about racism or sexism or some political, cultural thing. And that, to me, I, I think any movie that you make is going to reflect the times you're in, so there'll be some, some social meaning to it. But I'm not real, you know, it, it doesn't do much for me to make that the, the point of the movie. I, I think you see that with uh, Night of the Living Dead. Today, they, they it's, I mean, I, my opinion is Night of the Living Dead is like the beginning of modern horror, of this mm. time of horror. That, that was the, the turning point. And, um, and, you know, it was... Even when it came out, it was surprising that there was this black guy that ended up being the guy that survived. That You just didn't see that in the movies back then. Um, if there was a black guy in a movie, it would be, you know, it would have to be, um, you know, um, you know, Sidney Poitier, you know, in Lilies of the Field, or Guess Who's Coming for Dinner, which are all message-forward movies. Um, but with this, it was surprising, but it didn't mean anything to the movie. And, and George Romero um, said that he never, he didn't do the casting for any reason, but that's who he found. And, um, and of course, the guy gets killed at the end, too, by the redneck sheriffs. But I don't think it was message forward. In fact, I forget the name of the character. He was wrong all the way through the movie. If he hadn't been such an idiot, not you know, gone and hid in the basement with which is what the racist redneck wanted to do, um, they all would have survived yeah. like he did. He's the one that said, "No, we got to stay upstairs." And everybody said, "Got to go in the basement," you know. Well, he ended up hiding in the basement and living, you know. So anyway, but anyway, I think that the that that movie is just plain scary and really good. Um, and one reason it is is because it doesn't have the traditional horror movie um, kind of pattern of having this real slow beginning of the first act until you 
you know, the, you'll have a little stinger for the prologue and then it takes you a while to get anywhere. Um, but with Night of the Living Dead, it was like, they, they go to the cemetery. <laughs> you know, you're two minutes in, they're at the grave and the brother is teasing his sister because that guy in the cemetery is gonna get her. And by God, he does go after her and boom, you're into Zombieville immediately. And that is that was like fantastic, you know. There's none of the none of the baloney in there. So, but I think um, after Day of the Dead, um, Romero, you know, I think he just started believing that he was a social commentator a little too much. And he, I think, with Day of the Dead, you know, I think Tom Savini's stuff is great in Day of the Dead, but. I, I feel like there's a little, you know, kind of conscious, like this is not just a horror movie. And that kind of, I've always kind of been irritated by that, where when people say, oh, it's, it's not just a horror movie. I said, what's wrong with just being a horror movie? What's wrong with that? I don't know. Amen. You know, it's like, oh, it's just a roller coaster. What, your roller coaster has to have some other purpose than just be a roller coaster? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on, on some of that. There's a lot of times I feel like too many horror movies try to be slow burns. And then in the end, you're like, no, you just bored me for an hour and a half. <laughs> it's hard to say. I think that, you know, it's funny in the in the 80s. And there were some great horror movies in the 70s that I don't even remember seeing in the 70s. But when I saw them later... I was, um, you know, I was impressed by him. It's something like, I think there's one called Less Scared Jessica to Death. Yeah. I never saw that movie when it came out. But when I see it, if I see it now, I really appreciate it. There's some real, there's just an honesty to those movies back then. Or movies like Squirm. Or, you know, there there was a bunch of stuff in the in the 70s that, um, that were... Um, really good and that was that was pre VHS era and that's when see I got into the movie business at the beginning of the video revolution and that meant that there was a new medium there was a new um, distribution option for movies they didn't have to go to the theaters and the when I would you know during the 60s and 70s the, you know, the horror movies usually went to the drive-ins. When I was in high school, I, I did. I lived in Georgia, in high school. You know, we used to go to the drive-in because it was, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the cliche of the drive-in, which was true. It's that you could hide people in the trunk, and the cars back then had big trunks, and or you or you could go when it was like that. You paid for the car loan. And you could carry beer, which was illegal. Of course, you're underage and everything. So you, you know, you you bring beer, and you just go out and spend the evening at the drive-in and see a couple movies, more or less. Um, but they, it was, you know, that's where I saw, you know, the Sergio Leone West, you know, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and the, you know, a lot of the British horror movies like the. The skull and you know those kinds of 
things, or the Elvis Presley movies. <laughs> you know, they were always at the drive-in. But, but, and then during the during the seventies, the drive-ins were still around, and B movies went to the drive-ins, or they went to there were college screenings. So when I was in college in the late sixties, you could go see all these movies. And back then, I went to see all the like French New Wave stuff and the Fellini, and um, they just you know they had I think they projected sixteen millimeter films. You know, New Line Cinema who produced um, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, they started as a 16 millimeter um, catalog. And that meant it went to like PTA groups, to clubs, to, you know, veterans groups, to schools, to colleges, you know, there was a whole circuit for that. Now, once video started, boom, it all went to video. And videos changed the financing of movies and I was really lucky that when I got into movies it was the video time and you could um, you know there was all these sources of financing or sources of recoupment financing is never a problem with making movies if you can show your your investors how they're gonna get their money back and back then with video you actually could there was a you weren't going to lose everything. You know, everybody was buying a VCR and then all these mom and pop stores were popping up to sell, to rent videos. And because to buy them, it was like 80 bucks. Only porn <laughs> was worth that. And, um, they, and so then the studios, they saw video as a threat to them, the way they saw TV in the 50s. And so they wouldn't let any of their movies out on video. Well, that meant all the B movies got to be in the stores, and every and and the means of projection was your own VCR. It was a great time, you know. You see all the. I think the movies of the um, of the eighties really reflect that, especially the genre movies, because genre movies don't have to be that good, you know. They're you are. You know, if you make a raunchy comedy, a sexy, if you make a sexy comedy, you can get away with it being, you know, a B-movie. And with horror, horror fans are famously, um, are famously kind of accepting mm -hmm. of kind of bad movies. I know, you know, I know I'm a horror fan because I'm a movie fan, but if it's a, rom-com if it's an adventure movie a drama it has to be a good movie i don't want to watch it unless it's good but with a horror movie i'll watch the crap i'll, I'll watch a bad horror movie oh, yeah. and i'll get a kick out of it you know what i don't like is the message first <laughs> i don't like it when it's too serious i just prefer it if it's exploitative you know and i think what's changed back then in the 80s you had to have professionals involved with your movie. You, you, you couldn't make a movie without going to a laboratory. The director of photography had to know how to load these cameras. He had to know what kind of film to get. He had to know how to expose it. He'd have a light meter all over. He had to know all this science of light and film. And then you had to have um, 
you know, a whole bunch of electricians and stuff and grits to get the power to the lights. And you needed a lab and then you needed, you know, an editor that knew how to cut film. And then you had to go to the lab and you had to do the mix, the sound mix. You had to go to a whole studio for that. Well, today you just get, you can get After Effects and you get, you know, Final Cut um, Pro and you can cut it yourself on your video. You don't need any professionals involved. You can just do it yourself on your laptop or your iPhone or, or whatever it's like. And so I think, it, and you can do it so much cheaper because you hardly need a crew. You can, you can shoot in this room where you are with an iPhone, you know, but back then you had to put tons of light in, you had to make, you had to design a movie and it was hard to go on location. And if you did, and look, if you went on location, your camera and everything was so big, couldn't move around, hard to light in there. And, you know, most of the time we'd just be on a set, we'd be on a stage and there would be nothing there but darkness. And then you had to add the light. You had to add the walls. You had to add everything. And so every shot you took, you had to light it. And that meant you had to make decisions. Today, you can go shoot a movie in your house and you can shoot it without having to light it. So you don't even have to know about putting on a key light, a fill light, a backlight. You don't have to do any, you don't have to actually make decisions about what the lighting's going to be. You can just go with what's there, like a documentary. So I think that changes things. It, you know, the, the fact that, you know, back in the, you know, before the digital era, the, um, you had to, everything that you put on the screen, you had to make a decision about. And I think that that communicates. Now, wow, for no money, you can make a movie, and that's great, except that you find that everybody wants to be the singer-songwriter, you know? It's like before Bob Dylan, there nobody was a singer-songwriter. You know, Elvis didn't write his own songs, for Christ's sakes. Nobody did. They were songwriters, and they were singers. Each had their own thing. But now with the, you know, but then after Dylan, it was like, wow, you're not an artist unless you write your own songs. And so people start, I mean, today they, they buy the songs and then they tweak it to themselves and they put their name on it, just like directors do. Directors have to be a director, writer, producer, cinematographer, editor, because that makes them a real artist. But what happens is that they're maybe not that good at any of those things. And maybe, you know, you're better off um, having really strong collaborators. And then on top of it, horror has been accepted now in the mainstream because it, it's made so much money. It was, you know, it was similar back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, early 80s. If you wanted to see gore, you had to see a horror movie. But then the, the, action movies started co-opting gore with Rocky and mm -hmm. Rambo and all of a sudden start seeing horror in, in Sylvester Stallone movies and in kickboxing movies. And, and you get that whole, and so then, you know, horror movies kind of lost, you know, 
lost its their the, the uh, monopoly on that. Um, and I think that the horror movies are such a staple now, uh, you know, especially now. With, I think it's come full circle from Night of the Living Dead with The Walking Dead. It's just hugely mainstream. Well, I must say I don't care much for mainstream horror. That's that doesn't do it for me. You know, it's that's not what I like about horror. I don't particularly want to see a soap opera that happens to have zombies in it and the head getting blown up every now and again or somebody having asking someone to kill themselves them because they're gonna be a zombie or whatever the tropes are. Yeah, that sounds like a very good summary of Walking Dead pretty much. And uh you, you've had a bunch of different roles yourself in the industry. Do you have a favorite role that, that you prefer doing over others? Well, I I, um, I started as a producer, and it, I never had any training for film. So I didn't have um, – I never went to a class or anything. I got books back then. I'd get books. But I started from the point of view of – I thought that if I could make money making movies, that would be the most fun. I tried a lot of different ways to make money. And, um, and so I started with the idea of earning a living making movies. I never started with the idea that I had some, some important um, kind of artistic or social um, thing to say. And I wanted to make movies like the ones I liked. I think everybody does. I, I liked um, the Roger Corman movies, you know. So I put, you know, I, I liked on the Poe ones where he'd have, he would pour different paints and have it, have them kind of like roll, you know, kind of move around um, on black to do his credits. It was so colorful. And that's why I, I had a credit sequence for Reanimator. Instead of just putting it in black or something, I wanted a colorful credit sequence the way the Poe, the Corman Poe movies were. And I, and like on, on um, with William Castle, I love, and Night of the Living Dead and other ones of his, I loved how we would have a face come out on the screen, a floating head talking to you, you know, on Night of the Living Dead. And, um, and I thought that was so great. So on Bride of Reanimator, I had Dr. Hill's head talk to the audience at the beginning, except in color with blood. And it was directly because of William Castle, you know. And I think, I think we all do that with everything. We try to, we try to kind of reproduce in our own way what we, uh, what thrilled us at one time. And um, so I forgot your question. Oh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, John asked if, uh, what your favorite role was um, in the industry. Oh, so I started as a producer and I thought the producer, it was my movie. Well, then I found out the director got all the credit. <laughs> and I thought, shit, I want the credit too. You know, I, I was a producer because someone told me that the producer was the boss and he made the most money. And I, to be honest, I always wanted to be the boss and I always wanted to make the most money. So I thought, well, then I should be a producer. But then I saw, well, the director not only gets all the credit, he gets to make all these 
diddly little decisions, you know, and the producer gets to make big decisions, but, you know, so then I wanted to try directing. And then you naturally get into, t you naturally get into the storytelling. I don't particularly like, I don't like the writing part of it that much, but I like the inventing the story part a lot. But I'm not a guy who, who enjoys sitting by himself and, and um, working on a script, although I do it a lot, but mostly I do that when, I, when I'm prepared, when I'm rewriting a script to make a movie out of it. Uh, you have to understand that most of the movies I've ever made or been involved in had the deal, the money was there, the deal was there before we had the, the movie. So even with The Dentist, which is what you just brought up, um, I had made Return of the Living Dead 3 for um, Trimark. Mark Amin was the head of it. And it turned out real well, and I still think it's one of the best zombie movies out there. Agreed. The, um, and he said, um, he said, let's make another movie. And I said, what do you want to make? Because by then I knew real well, I could care. you got to make the movie that whoever's paying for it wants to make. Not what you, you know, I've never been good at like going hat in hand and pitching. I just feel like what do you want to have? And I'll, I'll make, I'll do it, and I'll try. And of course, I'll get my my jollies out doing it. Um, so he said he had an idea called the dentist, which honestly I thought was a really stupid idea. I thought this is going to be Doctor Giggles, you know. And he had a poster already. It had some artwork done of like a drill in the foreground, I think, with a drop of blood and somebody in a chair, you know, a girl in the chair. Um, under the light, and and he and I said, "Great, great idea. Let's do it." And um, and he and he and so that was the beginning of it. He had the money. He wanted the movie called The Dentist, and I could make it for him. And with the movie I made for him before was Return of Living Dead Three. On that one, I I produced and directed it and developed the script um, based on the title, because they had just bought, the, they all they had done was bought the right to make a sequel, to, to make a movie called Return of the Living Dead 3. That's what they had the right to. So then I interviewed many, many writers and found one, John Penny, who I really liked his pitch because I wanted to, I wanted the movie to have the, the a reanimated character be the main character and and that was um and so his idea fit into that he had a romeo and juliet type of idea and so um and i produced and directed it so that means that i got to develop the script with the writer I got to have all the storyboards done and I got, and I was directing it. And so I also, and I was also producing. So that meant they put the, I created a corporation, they put the money in and then I spend the money. So I got to, I got to write the checks or sign the checks. Well, that to me is the best because then 
if you're not signing the checks, things can happen that you don't know about. You can be a director and the production can be not um, necessarily supporting you. And there can be a lot of politics and a lot of pettiness and, and not even petty stuff, but real, real kind of differences of, of, of direction on a movie. And it can be very frustrating if you are directing, even if you're directing and writing, and even if you're directing and writing and producing, if you don't ultimately have your hand on on the wheel, if you don't if you don't have the wheel in your hands, because if you do, then you can take all your resources and put them where you think you're, they're needed, and and the only thing that you're responsible for is delivering whatever it was you promised, and also coming in under budget or on budget that you don't you know you can't be irresponsible. And there's ways to there, there's ways to control a budget, but they don't exist if you don't have your fingers right there, mm-hmm. you know, in the bank account. And that's not very common. And with the dentist, when we decided to do that, I did the same process. With the same, I interviewed a whole bunch of writers. Unfortunately, my regular writers, the people I've worked with before, came up with much weirder things. They took the dentist and they would go a bit far afield. And Mark Amin of Trimarket had insisted to me, well, he had made it clear. He said, I don't want any weirds. I don't want any sci-fi, any, you know, any kind of fantastical stuff. I want the movie to be based in a dental chair and be baited to just exploit the idea that when we go to the dentist, it's scary. And so we went through a lot of different pitches, different writers, and couldn't find anything. And then Trimark had also brought in Stuart Gordon, um, wanting to make some movies with him. And Stuart said, I'm game, what have you got? And he looked at the list of their projects and he said, I like the dentist. And they said, well, that one already has a director. And at that time I was producing as well and developing the script. And he said, well, he says, I'll be happy to just um, write it. And so he and Dennis came up with a pitch, uh, a short treatment, and it was great. It was about a very fastidious, clean freak dentist with a trophy wife in Beverly Hills who sees that his wife is, is um, being unfaithful with the sleazy pool guy. And, and he kills him. And then he goes to work. And you don't want to be his patient that you do not. morning. So that's the gimmick. And it's a great one. The, uh, of course, the so then it was it really was fantastic. I mean, it was all, but then we had you know they went from treatment to script, and when they went to script, um, the script didn't work as well as the treatment did. This is very common. I mean, I mean, often the treatments aren't that good, 
and you're not really convinced, but you kind of go, well, the script is going to make it good. Well, in this case, the treatment was fantastic. It was great. But when it went to script, uh, it wasn't quite as, as um, delightful. And, the, um, and so we had a big meeting and, um, you know, a creative thing where all the executives, there's creative executives from Trimark and Stuart and myself. And they told, they put forth what they, they said, you know, this, this three hours time period, we want it to take place over two days at least. And we need to open it up a little bit. And, and, um, and then Stuart um, didn't want to do that. And so then they said, well, we're just going to have to get another writer. And at that point, I was... Um, needing to work and I I was making um trying to remember maybe I had I had just made um the um Necronomicon and the Necronomicon the episode that Christoph Gans did was kind of a it was a tryout for him to direct this anime this live action version of an anime called Crime Freeman and and so it worked, and this was, Necronomicon was a Japanese-French co-production. And so it worked, and now we were able to do Crime Freeman. We were going to shoot it in Vancouver, and it was um, a much bigger budget than what I had been used to. And so then I told Trimark that I said, listen, um, I really need to go do this other movie and you're welcome, you know, go ahead and do what you want with the dentist. And if you want to get a different producer and director, that's fine. I will, I will work for you. I'll work off whatever you've already paid because they had been paying me to develop. It. So I said, Hey, I'll do a different movie, you know, and I don't feel like you're, you're not getting your money's worth. So then I went to Vancouver for a year to make um, Craig Freeman. And when I came back, I really needed a job. <laughs> and by that time, and I called up Mark Amin. <laughs> and by that time, he had another producer on it, Pierre David, who was kind of famous for doing these. Um, he's a, a Montreal-based uh, producer that has done a ton of movies, had his own company, and was involved in Platoon which won an Academy Award, but he mainly was famous for doing these, um, their, I guess you'd call them like um, profession movies, The Nurse, The Babysitter, the, you know, you know those, those kind of movies, usually with a woman in jeopardy almost, but, but not quite, um, you know, not quite Hallmark, you know, but more, a little harder hitting than that. And, um, and so he was going to do it up in Montreal, and they'd cut the budget way down. And um, and but then Mark said, I mean Mark Mark Amin said, "Hey, look at it. If you want to do it, and I needed I needed a job because I was just out of work." He said, "If you want to do it, I will. Um, I'll um, bring it down. I'll bring it back to LA to shoot, and you can direct it, and Pierre can produce it." And so. I went for it, 
but I got the, um, but of course the script wasn't finished. And so it took a lot of, <laughs> it was, it was a um, real adventure, <laughs> kind of preparing the movie while trying to figure out the script. And of course it, there was a lot of, I don't know if it was stressful, but to me kind of comedic, comedic elements to um, produce, uh, directing under Pierre David because he had his way, you know, and, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of his, his controls over the production were, I felt were absurd. But um, in, the, in the long run, he, um, I think he really, I think the movie was better for his involvement. And uh, do you feel like the movie was kind of like a precursor to some of the stuff we would see from like Saw and Hostel maybe like a decade later? Because I feel like watching The Dentist, I get those kind of like squeamish feelings that I would get like watching some of those scenes from, from Saw and movies like that. Maybe. I, I, I liked Saw, you know. I think James Wan was really a, an original guy. And I, I like Saw in a way that maybe I don't like some, some modern stuff um, because it was just such a grabber at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> the first scene just really gets it. But I wonder if it's so much. Maybe the dentist, dentist definitely leans in that territory. Um, it is. It does sort of, kind of, get to the periphery of of, um, of torture porn, I think, and I think a lot of the saw had that bit of a torture porn thing, but it was more like a puzzle. Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I liked about saw is everything was kind of a kind of a puzzle. Um, I'm not a fan of torture porn. Um, I, I mean, that's a demeaning term anyway, but I, I'm, I'm not big on seeing how much, um, you know, representing how much pain someone can have inflicted on them. I, it, it just doesn't really get me off, you know. And people say, well, what about Chainsaw Massacre? The Chainsaw Massacre doesn't have much much gore or pain. It's kind of like an art movie. It's just the title makes you think it's it's really, really explicit. It really isn't. Um, and I think Texas Chainsaw is, is a great movie. You know, one of the great 70s movies. And I do like the, I do like horror, you know, that includes painful, gory type stuff. But I'm not real big when that's the main thing, like Wolf Creek, for example, or Hostel. Mm -hmm. They're it's a it's a genre of itself. They're too cruel. It is a genre. Too cruel. And it's a subgenre. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's a subgenre, and it's not it's not one of the subgenres that I that I'm particularly attracted to. That's all. Right. You know, it's just you know, but but I can see that the dentist. Certainly did that, and also the dentist was something that I had never done before, which was a body count. I never made movies where somebody got killed; they usually came back. Right, but, right. It, I, I never, I never did like a a, a serial killer or a slasher film, uh, you know, a Halloween type thing. And I think Halloween is great, 
and I really like Friday the 13th because they're just so well, just so well done for what they are. But, but I, you know, personally, when Nightmare on Elm Street came out, when I first saw that, that appealed to me much more because it had a fantasy element. It had that dream surrealist type of fantasy element. And, and it was truly macabre, especially at the beginning of the first one. It really, you know, I think that scene in the alleyway, when you first see Freddy and his arms mm -hmm. are stretching out, I mean, I know they're using yeah, like sticks. It's crude, but man, but it just seems like, it seems like a real nightmare. There's nothing real right. about it. And I like that. And, but it really gives you that. I, to me, it's like, wow, that's horror. You know, that's, and I really felt like, um, you know, I really loved Nightmare on Elm Street when it first came, you know, that, that movie when it came out. And I watched all the rest of them because they, became just kind of a um, a, um, a wisecracking Freddy showcasing what the rubber guys could do this year mm -hmm. you know you know what weird makeup and mechanical effects can they do with methacellulose and foam latex now and I, I thought that was one of the best things about the 80s but I'm not you know uh, the slasher movies, you know, I liked the first ones, but um, I didn't go see all of them. You know, you know, Burton, you're my bloody birthday, my, you know, the, I don't know. Happy birthday to these. me, my bloody Valentine. You kind of merged two together there, but I, I get your point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many. There's so many. Yeah. yeah. And they all followed the same pattern. And I wasn't, that wasn't what I went to see so much. I would go see the, the remake of The Blob. Oh, hell know? yeah. Or I would see something that had some fantasy element or, you know, um, Pumpkinhead or something that, that, you know, that was, I don't know, that had a little fantasy element to it. I like that, that part of it. Absolutely. And um, so that's what I wanted to bring up next to follow John's question was, uh, you know, he had brought up Hostel and how, like, kind of uh, uh, boundary-pushing the dentist was. Now, was that because of the studio putting those restrictions on you and saying this has to be a serious movie? Or uh, was it just something you wanted to do intentionally? Because this movie is crueler than anything you've worked on before. Like, I think it's the cruelest movie you've done. So was that due to the studio saying, like, no bullshit? Or was that you saying, like, hey, I'm going to not goof around on this one and just get straight to the point? Maybe. Maybe I think I think maybe I never I didn't I guess maybe I never used pain as a for its entertainment value. I mean I did use pain, but I, I think in a different. Is it different when a zombie's doing it? I don't know. I mean you think of Return of the Living Dead three or or even with I don't know Bride of Reanimator or something. I think I was always more drawn towards. The fantastical elements, and I liked the horror suit that it was in. Um, with the dentist, of course, it was based on the idea that everything had to be. It was a killing. This guy's going to kill all these people. Now, the new script by Charles Finch, his rewrite, added a bunch of great elements that I liked. At first, I had a hard time thinking I could make that movie because I didn't know really how to do just a body count movie, 
just how to kill a bunch of people. But what, what let me in was the idea, and this was in the original script, um, which was that the dentist is off his rocker. And so we're seeing things from his point of view. Now that gives you a lot of license to have fun with things that are uncomfortable. And with Charles Finch's um, version, he added the wraparound, the book, book ending of the padded cell. So he had the dentist um, introducing the story. And that was, for me, that was like a, that gave me a lot of room because now we have an unreliable narrator. We don't know what happened. This is some crazy guy in a, in a mental hospital telling you a story. So now, whatever you do is, you're already, the format of it is an unreliable narrator. And then, and then for that scene, I did the scene so that he's even turning on lights that are invisible and using instruments that are invisible. That to me is on the level of society in the scene in society, the first scene after the prologue of society when Billy's in the, his um, psychiatrist's office and he bites the apple and sees all the worms. Well, of course, the idea is that you could bite it. You could say, this is a beautiful apple. He's saying, I have a feeling that beneath the surface there's something terrible going on. That's his paranoia. And I think we've all felt it. <laughs> and when he bites the apple, there's a worm in it. It's rotten, right? That can happen. But I put a ton of worms, a hundred worms, which is totally ridiculous. But I think that moment just says, hey, whatever you're going to see in this movie, you got to understand, it may be, it may um, kind of go a little extreme, a little surrealistic. And I think with the dentist, when he turns on, you know, he goes, he acts like he's talking to you and you're in a chair, but there's nobody there, just, uh, just padded cells. I think that to me, like, was really made me feel comfortable because I thought, okay, let's see what this guy's, you know, let's make it, let's make it clear that this is like somebody's crazy story. And then Charles Finch got rid of the, um, the, um, you know, the, him killing the, the pool guy. Um, and, um, I didn't like that because I felt like, oh, it's one of those, oh, it's all a dream type of thing. You know, I hate that when you, when, you know, they, it's, it's, you know, it's all, you know, you know, nothing matters because it was a dream and it didn't really happen. But it was the only way to make it take two days is if, but you wanted to have that scene where he says, show them what good teeth you have, you know, that's fucking hilarious, yeah. right? That's Stuart and Dennis. Right. You know, that's that's them. That's the animator, and um, and so and they wouldn't let me use somebody who wasn't white, right? So I just tried to make them as as oily and disgusting <laughs> as I could. And the um, and then he shoots him 
but he's only imagining. That's just what he wanted. Right. And so then we know that he wants, he hates his wife. And so now we get to get to go overnight and get to have this whole interplay with him trying to get revenge on his wife. And that kept brought us into the second day. We didn't, it wasn't just a flatly kill the wife, kill the patient, you know, boom, boom, boom. It was, it was, you know, he's losing it. And I thought that, I thought it worked well. I, I did. I, I felt like ultimately that change was for the better. And, and then there was a series of, of um, characters that come in who, for the most part, were all in the original script. But we also, so he didn't kill the wife, so we had him kill a dog, <laughs> you know. And so, and we had him go to the neighbor and see that the pool guy is screwing the neighbor too. This motherfucker. <laughs> he's not just doing his wife, but he's doing the girl, their friend. And then he kills the dog and then we, uh, Charles um, Finch did that and he brought in the cops, Ken Foray and his partner. And so there we, there we were, you know, then we have the cops. So you have a little cutaway with the cops, which helps a little bit. And, and then the other really great thing he added, Charles Finch added, was the idea that this dentist had um, steam rooms that he had special rooms for each um, each operatory. And that was something that wasn't in it that I thought was just great because now all of a sudden, this guy's got a character and he's, he's killing people, but he loves opera. I can get behind that. You know, this guy's got some saving grace. And of course, the, you know, the scene where he takes advantage of the, of the would-be starlet with the gas, which was in the first script, you know, that's, that was hard to do for me because I'm not big on watching a rape scene or, you know, a movie about someone dying of a disease, unless it's an alien or, uh, you know, it has to be some fantastical kind of element there to get you some distance from it. But in here, he's, he's actually um, violating this young girl, but by intercutting his wife, I, for me, it kind of gave me the out. And I could kind of make him, um, you could see him, you know, I didn't completely, I can't say that I sympathize with the dentist, but in a way I do. I'm not, I'm not totally, I mean, he did terrible things, but no, he's going mad, you know. And so there's a, um, so I think with the theme rooms and then the opera room, and he asks his wife to come, you see that they both hate each other. Um, and then of course the big scene is where, where he pulls out all our teeth and uh, Corbin Bernson is the one that pulled the thing off. You know, he, he just did a terrific job, but he, but I feel like that scene in the opera room operatory, um, I feel like it implies a whole, a whole lot more than it shows. You know, that definitely is one of those places where it really makes you uncomfortable. 
and he mostly I think the part that's that is terrible is not on her it's seeing his face as he's pulling the pulling out the tooth and he's going <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's Corbin, right? It's it's the guy. It's the bad guy. It's not watching, you know, it's not, you're not, the fun isn't so much in watching the poor wife. It's in watching him. And then, of course, after she's got all this makeup effects, you know, then you're into, you know, the kind of body horror that's kind of fun, you know, later. And uh, Corbin Bernson, uh, I loved him as playing Roger Dorn in the Major League movies. Major League movies are why I'm a Cleveland baseball fan, which is sad, 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 sad itself. They never win. But uh, he, this is not like a normal ro- Cleveland Guardians. Cleveland yes, Guardians. Guardians. Not Indians. Guardians. Now, uh, was he somebody you had in mind for this role? Because this is this is like a departure at the time for something like he was known for. No, um, this was, you know, I did a couple of these um, um, Silent Night, Deadly Night movies, which were super cheap. And they were just based on picking a name from a list. So on one of them, we had Maude Adams, who was a Bond girl. And on another one, we had uh, Mickey Rooney, who at one time was the biggest star in the world. And you, there's a certain price that they that you can pay, and you go down the list until somebody takes it, and that's because the, the company, the distributor, needs a name for the for the box for the VHS box. And back then, that's how they did it, and so they just need a name on there, and you need to get one of the names that that fits. It's like I said, they're 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 movie deals that just need the movie. It doesn't matter the script and it doesn't matter even the rest of the cast hardly, but you got to have that name, you know, you got to have something to sell. And I think with, with the dentist, actually the casting was phenomenal. I thought, I mean, the, um, the, um, Hey, we had the, the Hulk before he was the Hulk. Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Mark Ruff. (laughs) And he was just a date. I remember watching him and going, I thought, God, this guy's really great. And he had that little dippy little part of being the agent, but God, he did it well. I couldn't believe it. And what's the name of the, um, I'm trying to remember the name of some of the, like the, the hygienist and the x-ray technician. They were all, and the ta- tax guy, what was the name of the, 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 the corrupt IRS guy. Yeah, he just wanted free I mean, dental work. Everybody in that movie, all the little were very good. And maybe because, you know, it was easier to get people because it pays nothing. So it's easier to get them, I think, when you, um, one, have a part that's very easy to understand. They don't have to deal with any kind of sci-fi fantasy type mm-hmm. of scene that they don't quite get getting people to play in society that's hard because they read that script they're kind of like, I, don't know. I don't know right but you do the dentist oh you're going to play the hygienist in a dental office and the dentist going crazy okay i get that you Simple know enough. um i think that 
Yeah, and I think that it all makes sense, and and um, so they'll do it because actors want to act. They want to be in a. They want to just act. It's not a career thing. It's just that's what they do. Uh, unfortunately, most of the movies I make are maybe too weird for normal actors, and so I don't get them. You know, and then it doesn't pay if you pay a ton. You know, of course you can get anything. But um, with Corbin, he was one of the people. As a matter of fact, um, I spoke with with um, Chevy Chase's agent <laughs> to wow. be the dentist. You know, that would be a totally that'd be an interesting choice. Um, and it, you know, I certainly thought that Bruce Campbell would be a great dentist. Oh yeah, right. But I forget with him whether he would. I think maybe the money was too low for him. I don't know. But with Corbin. Um, I didn't really know his stuff. I never watched L.A. Law. I did see Major League, um, but when I but then they showed me some some of his reel, and he played. There was one thing he did in specific. He played like a bit, but like a bad father, a bad stepfather, you know, like a bad husband or something. And it was effective, and I thought, well, yeah, he can do the dentist then. What I didn't, what I didn't um, um, predict or pre-see was that was how just what a, um, I mean, he almost um, in his scenes we like collaborated about how to stage him. You know, he always had an idea, and as a matter of fact, he went on to direct movies. He's directed movies and stuff. He's he's like a professional movie guy. There's no, you know, there, it's it's like Mickey Rooney when he was at Silent Night, Deadly Night Five. I I was producing that. I wrote it. And I produced. I co-wrote it and produced it, and didn't direct it. So I, and it was like a nothing budget movie. And I and Mickey Rooney had his own Winnebago. You had to rent his Winnebago. And so that would be his his dressing room, and you had to pay his assistant, who happened to sort of have the same stature that Mickey Rooney had. So he would be his his photo double, and he would do all the photo doubling for the lighting, and Mickey would just go out for the shot. You know, so he would sit back in his Winnebago and mostly listen to the races. He had the racing sheet, you right. know. Um, and listen to the races on the, on the radio. And I would, always, I would sit out there where he was so I could chat with him. And, um, and he was a great guy, you know. And um, while he made, when he, at one point he told me, he says, you know, you know what the most important movie being shot in Hollywood today is? I said, what? And he said, this movie. Because I'm in it. <laughs> and I thought, man, that's the attitude, right? And he went on the Tonight Show and um, and um, pimped for our movie. That's awesome. I mean, there was, we didn't, I mean, come on, we didn't have any, any budget for promotion whatsoever. This was, this was a cheap video release. But he's in the movie, by God, it's big shit, <laughs> you know? And you kind of go, yeah. And I think that's kind of the way Corbin is. Corbin grew up in a movie family, 
And I find a lot of actors that come from showbiz families, they don't have the, such a precious kind of idea of what acting is or, yeah. you know, you know, it's not so, it's not so precious. They'll just do anything. It's like Portman always reminded me of, um, of Lionel Barrymore. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with the Barrymore family, John Barrymore. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Drew like a granddaughter of John Barrymore. Mm-hmm. But Lionel Barrymore always impressed me because of the genre movies he did. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Devil Dog. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, he's in Devil, you know, the old black and white one. But he's in all these goofy horror movies, besides being a huge actor. He's also a big mainstream studio actor. And when you see them do stuff that I like, you know, like dolls coming to life, for Christ's sakes, and play it to the end, or playing it in drag, and you kind of go, you know, there's a kind of actor, there's just no, they're just impressive because they'll just do anything. They just get it all together. And I think that that's, that's to me what Corbin is. And I think it's because... He came from an acting family. For him, acting is like the business. It's what you do. And doing a little movie, a big movie, who knows? You know, you just you just keep going. And I think you really see it in the dentist. He he really um, you know makes it work. And also, when we were location scouting, we didn't even have an ending to that movie. Oh wow! And it was the director of photography that found the came to me and said, hey, we're looking at a dental school because, of course, the original script didn't have any dental school because it all ended before lunch. It started with killing the pool boy and it ended at lunch. It was like a three-hour trajectory for the story. We have to make it take two days. And, and it ended with the little girl, the cops coming in and saving the little girl with the braces. So when we hit that point, what are we going to do? It's, you know, and um, Charles Finch had added this thing where he goes to his, his he teaches at the dental mm-hmm. college and starts going crazy and seeing his victims and stuff. And um, so that was in there, but it was a bit undeveloped. It was a bit over the top. Um, I mean, there was like to make it more intense, they just had he sees six people of is his wife. You know, it was like that kind of thing, just more. And, um, but we had, but it was there. And so I took out the multiple, the multiple thing, but we needed an ending. And, um, and while we were checking out the film school, I think it was at um, Pasadena College um, campus. And the DP actually, who had already been I was very um, insecure about the opera stuff. And he said, oh no, I'm a big opera fan. And he gave me all these areas to listen to so I could choose the music for the opera. And then he found this, he had wandered into this auditorium when we were looking at 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 the dental school room where they have all the chairs and stuff. And we went down there and he said, hey, the movie should end here. 
And that was, we were like days away from shooting. And so we added the bit where the dentist runs away and then sees the opera singer singing and imagines it's his wife and, you know, kind of falls apart. But it kind of ends with a big, I felt like it was very, you know, I liked the guy because he was just someone who was like um, kind of disappointed in love. Yeah. You know, like most of us. He was just... <laughs> disappointed definitely <laughs> it just a, just had a drill in his hand when he was and all the killings i didn't know how to do those so what i did is i went and watched I, of course i've seen you know every hitchcock movie because that's what you do right um and i just picked out all these hitchcock scenes of killings and just sort of copied them okay you know? so like when she's getting, um, you know, she's getting strangled. She drops the, um, the syringe. That's, that's dial in for her. Oh, nice. Okay. And so is, um, so is, she remembers just the scissors. And so is, um, the scene where he gets the pool boy. The pool boy comes out and finds, um, Brooke with her weird Mm -hmm. mouth. And, um, and he backs up, and that's also from Dial M for Murder, where the killer, or it's, that the killer shows up behind her, but you run the camera all array around him, and then you show the knife come out. So you didn't even know you were there, yeah, but that's 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 Hitchcock, and some of the stuff is the um, it's not um, it was. Due to, um, due to not having resources, which is which sometimes is what makes things stylish. So, for example, to kill the kill kid, the pool boy, the pool boy, we didn't have time to shoot that when we were at the location, and so we were at a warehouse next to the train tracks. There's a lot of trains there, and where we shot all the interiors and um, and we needed to show the, the dentist killing the t- pool, pool, pool boy. We already had the ending where he threw the bloody knife in the water and, and we needed to have him stabbing him and we couldn't go back. And so if I went outside, they could give me a little piece of grass next to the sidewalk. The, the concrete that could be like the pool. <laughs> and, um, but you couldn't shoot in any direction because there were trains and then there was a warehouse. So I had to put the camera up top. And so then I just shot the whole thing and with him stabbing and, and I forget whether the, the, which one of the actors was throwing the blood, but it was all just from above because I didn't have a set. Well, better for that. It looks very, looks like a stylish scene. But really it was just because, it was because we didn't have anything to shoot. And I think that's, it's very often the case. We did shoot another killing and that's the only time of any movie I've ever done where I didn't include a killing in, in the final cut. And that was we killed the um, 
we had him kill the house. Oh, okay. And I forget why. So for some reason, it, it just didn't fit the flow of the movie. And I always tell people if they're going to be in a movie, a horror movie, I say, well, do you get killed or do you kill him? <laughs> and if they do do neither of them, they can get cut out of the movie. I said, just make sure they kill you, then they won't cut you out. But in this case, she was cut out. Well, um, did uh, did Corbin uh Bernson, did he have any rituals that you are aware of? Like, because when I think of the film, what I mean by rituals is like acting rituals. Because uh, the the pool scene that we had talked about earlier, where he's uh, it's like his fantasy, where he's uh, has the pool boy at gunpoint and he's kind of holding his wife's head down. You know what I mean? In that scene, he really fucking turns it on. And I'm like, I wondered, like, was he turning up loud music or screaming at himself in a mirror in a room before filming that, or was he just like totally normal and then just turned it on? Not at all. He's a he's just he's been an actor since he was a kid. I think I he no he doesn't do any. It's not it's not that serious. You know this isn't he's not doing. Um, I don't think he's doing. He's not extreme. That okay. Way. He's not. He doesn't. He he might need a moment every now and again, like a lot of actors. It's it's just like a. A baseball player can't just step out onto the plate. He's got to kind of take a couple of swings and, you know, and, you know, or even if the pitcher kind of interrupts his wind up, the, the you know, the batter will say, hey, I need to tell the umpire to give him a moment because he doesn't want to be caught off guard. Actors very often just need to be quiet for a minute before they do something. But Corbin, I don't think anything he did in that movie was was really stretching him at all. I think he just has that. I was surprised because when I did that movie with him, you know, I'd end up in situation and go, man, I, what are we going to do? We don't have much time. And say, hey, we can do this, you know, we can put the camera there. And he would have it all, he would have an idea for it. You know, he wasn't like just going to tell me what to do or he wasn't like, oh, what's my motivation? <laughs> There's none of that. You know. But he would get wound up while he was doing it. And he would get very wound up and, and kind of get a bit out of control. Okay. So we definitely, <laughs> you know, he, at the end, we I put myself in the movie. We had the, once again, I had to put the movie there camera up top and follow him being thrown into a dental chair at the very end. And I was the technician, you know, and so he kind of got pissed off at me because he felt like I was a little rough. <laughs> and I told him, I remember telling him I thought he deserved it. <laughs> you know, the last um, thing about the dentist that probably should be mentioned is that um, a lot of it, I mean, it was, a no-budget kind of thing, movie, so it had these real limits. But I had just spent a year with Christoph Gans, who was directing Crime Freeman that I was producing. And Christoph was a, is French, of course, and he was a critic before he directed. His first directing was Necronomicon, his first feature was Crime Freeman. And I produced many, many, many first-time directors, quite a few. 
And when you produce, um, probably, you know, when you produce a director, um, you almost have to be able to get inside of how they think to be able to know where you're going with the production. And on most directors that I recall, I could pretty much predict how they would cover a scene after working with them a little while. If we had a scene, I could almost have a pretty good idea of how they're going to, you know, what shots they're going to use to cover it. But with Christoph, I never could. I mean, never. And it was because he was a cineast. He was a French critic. And so he just watched 10 movies a day. And, you know, when he would go back to Paris every time we had to go to the laser disc store and he'd fill up his suitcases with laser discs, you know, he was just crazy watching movies all the time. And everything he did, every scene he had, um, would be referencing some other movie, movies I didn't know about. And I never, I never had worked with anybody like that. We, you know, Stuart Gordon was a theatrical type of director. He wanted the least cinema type stuff because he was focusing on the stuff he was so good at. Um, but um, with Kristoff, it was totally a different world. And everything, lots of camera tricks. If you watch the first episode in Necronomicon, which was Christoph's episode, there's more in-camera tricks there using, you know, oversized coins to bounce down steps so that they look, you know, big, so they look better. Or, you know, um, getting a midget to shut the doors as the storm comes in so the doors look bigger. I mean, just all kinds of tricks, you know, and and cinematic tricks and references. And so when I did Crime Free, uh, when I did The Dentist, I'd just come off of that. And I think that influenced me a lot. I think it really, I, I had to, I didn't even, have, I couldn't even afford one day of a storyboard artist. So I had to do all my own storyboards. And what I did is I started storyboarding at least the first and last shots of every scene. So I knew how my transition would go. So I always knew what I should do with the camera to the first shot of the next scene. That's not something I ever did before. I used to just shoot the scenes and give it to the director, the editor to, to kind of make sense out of it. I mean, I'd have an idea, but it wasn't that rigid. And the frames were rigid. We were in a little set. We built that set. And didn't even have the money for all the furniture. Like the when I need, I wanted a little kids' play area, and it wasn't in the budget, right? And so I gave my credit card to the art director. They went to IKEA, you know, bought all the furniture for the kids. We shot it, and then they took it back and got the money. <laughs> that's how we were doing. That's how we shot that movie. Of course, this isn't. No surprise to anybody who's made a cheap movie. I mean, every, you know, but you would think, you know, hey, Corbin Birdson, I don't know, all these actors, you know. No, no, there's no money. And, and, and um, Pierre David was not about to bend on anything. 
The, um, so we did a lot of, you know, there was a lot of that, but it meant that we were on this little set. There was nothing weird about it. Um, it was all, you know, the whole office was built, right? So you could move it because there are little rooms. You have to move a wall to be able to shoot. And everything had to be built according to what had to happen in the, in the script. But um, so, so the, I had, so I kind of was forced into trying to make the frame very rigid to, you know, there's this, there's this kind of artistic or cineastic kind of idea of watching movies where you watch the frame, you watch the edges of the frame. It's like, it's like an art. If you paint or draw or something, it's really about the frame. It's like, what, where, where do you, you know, what do you do within that frame? There's a different feeling within a frame to different parts of it. And so I didn't, couldn't look up because we didn't have a ceiling. You know, there's a lot of limitations. And um, so I did, I tried to do things that were, that would keep you in the story. And I know it was directly related to having spent a fucking year with Christoph Gans and in his kind of mentality that, for example, when the dog dead and we see the dog, which wasn't really a dog, it was a dead goat. We can go with that later, but it, when you, I hand up from the dog and then you see this um, fake cloud and an angel out of paper and you find that you're inside the heaven room where the everything is like oh in the sky and clouds and so to do that i put the dog and a bush in the in the operatory so i could just pan up with the dog and all of a sudden be on the sky but you immediately know it's it's just a blue wall with a <laughs> With a with a paper angel and, and and cloud, and then you're in the dentist office. So that transition is something I never would have done before. That it wouldn't have occurred to me, or just the way I you know every transition was planned out, and 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 the um, and even and even all the kind of looking out in the hall and somebody else looking out and. You know, that was all kind of Hitchcockian kind of suspense type stuff, even though we were doing it kind of in a humorous way. Um, but it's stuff that I wouldn't, if, if the movie had been able to be much weirder, it would have been no problem. You know, I wouldn't have done any of it because I would have just focused on, you know, on the weird stuff. But because it was so normal and it was such a traditional type of movie, I, I was forced into that and I used, um, you know, I used Christoph's, the, the inspiration I got from him to, um, to, you know, to make the movie the way it was. Yeah, uh, the film, along with winning Best Special Effects at the 1996 Fanta Festival, also took home the Jury Grand Prize uh, from the Sweden Fantastic Film Festival. Did you enjoy the festival circus? Did you find it rewarding to win the grand jury prize? Um, 
I've always been skeptical of any of those prizes. I'm always glad mm. to get get it if I can. Um, I've been on a lot of juries, so I know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see how the sausage is made. But um, I always liked the festivals. And um, I liked the, back then, especially in the 90s, um, before there were so many, now there's just tons of them. There didn't used to be any in the U.S. It was all kind of in Europe. But I loved it because the people who were making the festivals were just horror geeks. And they wanted to make movies probably, and a lot of them went on to do it. But they were just horror geeks, and they go, well, let's have a festival. And then we can put up, our, put up the movies we like, and... We'll get the money, we'll bring over guests, people that we'd like to meet, right? And so it's just, it, in general, it was just so much fun. And you get to know, it's a circuit of people, you know. As it developed, as they got much more established and everything, the big ones, which didn't start big, like the Brussels one is huge, and CJS is huge in Spain, but they then they get so big they're really um almost a little corporate they they quit they, i like the little ones the ones that are just starting you know it's kind of like if you started a festival in delaware i don't know if you can even do it these days now because there's so damn many festivals right yeah right but if you and they're going to charge you to show the movies and you know it's it just back then they didn't even charge you just went and you and you just got to hang out with people in Sweden, you know, and you got to go, you know, learn the drinking songs. And if you went to Amsterdam back then, it was the only place you could smoke pot legally. <laughs> you know. um, it was, uh, it would say it was, it was a lot of fun. I just got back from a festival in, in South Korea. Um, now, and it's big, but it's still fun because you meet people that are in the game, yeah. you know, and making movies. I went through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. I was just making movies, movies, movies. And it was basically because I had to, you know, I make low budget movies and the fees aren't very big. So you got to do it a lot to, to be able to support a family. I got four kids, you know. But um, now, of course, I you know my kids are grown up and everything. But the um, but you get to see the people who are who are making these movies. The one I went to is all kind of based on South uh, on Asian movies, okay. and so you know I I I haven't seen them yet, but I've got links. I met the filmmakers who made. I don't know if you've heard of. The sadness. Oh my God! Yes, it's a crazy movie. movie. Crazy movie. Yeah, we got a screener for that from Shutter. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's he seems really. I mean, I really like him. You know, he's somebody I could do business with. I mean, and plus, he's like he's an American guy in Thailand. Mm -hmm. You know, and people who go to other countries to live, which I grew up outside of the U.S., so I. I've lived a lot outside and I lived, you know, I was in Spain. I've lived in Mexico and, and Canada and Spain, and Indonesia, and Italy, a lot of different countries making movies. And 
part of it is because I grew up outside of the country, so it kind of suits me. But I've always thought that, you know, people who just sort of go where they're not from and, <laughs> and kind of get along, yeah. it's, there's just something a little different. You know, it's just, you know, to, you know I made one movie not in English. I, I produced a movie in Indonesia, no-budget movie, called Takut, Faces of Fear. And I used five different Indonesian directors, writers, producers. It's made for no money, all Indonesian language. And, you know, it was just a lot of fun because you really start seeing, you really kind of see what, what a movie's about when you're distance yourself from everything familiar. Right. Um, and I think that's very impressive. There's another guy there, his name is Ken, what's his name? Ken Scenes. He made a movie called Sissy. Haven't seen that yet. Not you know, familiar Sissy. with that one. Yeah. And that one looks really good. It's got a lot of good. I've got a link to that. I, you know, I got a lot of. You got a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> I come back from the festival. I come back from the festivals, you know. And these are all Korean or Taiwanese, you know. But it's amazing because when you look at those Asian movies, you can find some real interesting stuff. You know? Definitely. So anyway, I do, I do, I, I do like the festivals, and I do, I, I enjoy seeing the people who are kind of all involved. And a lot of people, you know, they have just got their first movie or their second one, and they're just really, really scrambling, you know, to. to get it going you know it's it's a tough racket yeah definitely you know? and unfortunately most people won't pay enough attention to the business of it because if you can if you can finance it you can have any job you don't know? have to go hat in hand and ask somebody to accept you into a club that uh, you probably don't even want to be in really yeah, I hear you. <laughs> well, um, with, uh, I mean, no disrespect by this, you know, we're fans of the movie and fans of yours and the work you've done. Uh, but with the shit show that the production for the dentist was, were you surprised how popular the movie became and that it got a sequel and was, and was I the was, dentist yeah. too a better experience for yeah. you? No, uh, but the, but the dentist, yes, I was really surprised because I was pretty, um, I had come off of Crime Freeman, and that was that was a much bigger budget. It was like fifteen million dollars, and back then that was pretty good. And it was, I never got that kind of money. You know, I was doing movies for a million or under, right. one and a half. You know, that was, you know, the dentist was like, I think it was like seven hundred grand or something, which today would be kind of like a two hundred thousand dollar movie. You know, two fifty, three hundred, four hundred, you know, like that. I mean, I, it's, it's, um, it, it was really tight, let's put it that way. And, um, and so, but I needed the job and I did have an opportunity. I had talked to coming off of Crime Freeman, the, my producing partner on it was Sammy, Samuel Hadida, kind of a famous producer that has a distribution company in France. It's probably the third or fourth biggest distributor in France 
And this was a co-production between Japanese. The Japanese producer was Takei Chisei, same ones from, from Necronomicon. And Taka is the guy who created J-Horror, The Ring, The Grudge, Dark Rock, okay. all those movies he produced. He sort of created that whole thing. Um, and when I came back, um, all of a sudden I didn't have a job and I hadn't been living. I'd been out of L.A. for a year or more. And I called up Sammy and said, man, I need a job. And he said, well, listen, I'm co-producing this movie called Freeway. And um, it's in co-production with, um, I think it was Oliver Stone's company and all this. And, um, and you can be my producer on it. And he would pay me the same as what I would have gotten for the dentist. And ever, all my friends told me, don't do the dentist, don't work with, Dear David's gonna eat you up and spit you out, you know. He's, he's really tough and all this. And I thought, well, and then I had one weekend to make the decision. <laughs> it was Friday night. And if I wanted, I could either take freeway and all of a sudden be dealing with, you know, Oliver Stone's company and a bit, a bit bigger of a picture with a high profile. And was it Reese Witherspoon, I think, did it? And, um, or I could do this dipshit little dentist movie with Pierre David, but I would be casting on Monday, right? So, uh, you know, I shook hands with the devil <laughs> and, did, and did the, I thought, you know what? I want to be doing casting. I want to, I don't care. You know, I've made a lot of movies. Uh, I think I can handle uh, a kind of hard-ass uh, producer. <laughs> what the fuck, you know? And... Um, and so, I, so that was why I did it, and it was so, um, it was very, very um, difficult. Um, but, um, but it, um, and it was like we were rewriting all the time. I worked with uh, Pierre David's, one of his um, assistants named Sherry Bryant, and she, um, she was, she was just um, really invaluable for me because we had to redo the whole script and we were rewriting the script while we were going as we were casting and it was yeah it was terrible at one point it wasn't terrible in the sense that um, it was it was terrible because I wasn't really on the same page as the producer as Pierre and I didn't get to, I didn't get to sign the checks. And so I, so he had certain criteria. And, um, and at one point it even got to be uh, on a ridiculous level that we were so tight for money. It was, I could tell that we were very tight for money because our entire crew was either female or foreign. And back then in the in the 90s, you didn't see a lot of women on the crew. I mean, they would be in makeup and wardrobe, right? 
but you didn't see them like being grits or being DPs or being, you know, first ADs. You didn't see that. They would be maybe in the office. They'd be the coordinator. They, you know, you'd see it there. But this movie was so cheap that women had to take less money. <laughs> so a ton of our crew was female. And, and then the other part is foreign people in Hollywood, like French and Italians and stuff that are here, that they have a work permit probably, but they're not going to necessarily, you know, they will have to take less money. So we really had a crew that reflected that budget. And, um, and even at one point, we're shooting on film, you got to remember. And um, film is, is very expensive. It's not like today when you turn on your, your you know, 4K and you just run it, mm. right? Run it through, you, don't, you know, you run it through rehearsals. You just run the goddamn thing because it doesn't cost a nickel to, to record tape or hard drive. Well, back to record film, 35 millimeter film, every foot that you use, you had to buy that foot of film. You had to, um, to um, you have to get it developed. You have to get it printed. I mean, it's expensive. Um, so you didn't want to, you know, you wouldn't say shoot the rehearsal. You want to shoot when you're ready to shoot. Well, at one point, Pierre was so upset that um, that we we were using too much film, he said. <laughs> and the the line producer came to me very embarrassed because this was such a ridiculous thing. And he said, Listen, Pierre said that you have an allotment of so many feet of film every hour. And when you reach that allotment, you're cut off. <laughs> so, so the thing is, it was like, you got to hurry up. But to hurry up, what you do is you shoot the rehearsal because you could use it. But if you can't shoot film, you can't shoot the rehearsal. And so I, it was so ridiculous. I just said, hey, man, tell me when to stop and I'll go sit down till the next hour. I mean, it was really ridiculous, but it wasn't that the it wasn't that the production, the production itself, the re, the restrictions were great, and the and the um, and of course something like the film thing, which he never followed through on because it's so stupid. That was goofy, but the shoot itself was. Um, it wasn't a shit show. It was well organized. It was well scheduled. They, it was very professional and um, not even not as stressful as a lot of movies I've done. It was it it um, we we shot it. Now once it was done and we were cutting it, and I did get my my cut, my editor that I had been using since Return of the Living Dead 3, Chris Roth, who has edited, you know, he's, he's edited a lot of movies for me. And he, he did uh, one of his famous movies, is Killer Clowns from one. Outer Space. Oh, yeah. You probably know that one. 
<laughs> but um, he did return Liberty at three for me, and um, and he um, he was cutting it, and you know it was I really and I was by that time I was I I was in Florida shooting a um, this pilot for a Tarzan TV show at Disney. Oh boy. <laughs> Um, it was just awful, but the, but, and I was coming back to, to do the sound with Alan Howarth, who's one of the unsung heroes. He, Alan Howarth is, um, you probably know him because he co-wrote the music for yeah. most of John Carpenter's yep, movies. The thing. Yeah. And he, he was the first guy who did sound design. He's, he's a guy that nobody knows about. But to me, he's like one of the greats, one of the great people. Uh, you should have him on your podcast because this guy has been there. Oh, we'd love you to know, have him. And has done all this great. Yeah, and he, did, and he did the entire package for the dentist. We were so cheap. I flew back. I flew from Florida, Orlando, back to L.A. on a Friday. When, at that time, he was working out of this little warehouse that, that, that he lived in. And he did, and I left on Monday. And during that time, we, on a keyboard, uh, you know, an electric keyboard, we went, we picked out the music for the whole movie, you know, kind of sketched up the music for the whole movie. And then he did the whole sound package. He mixed it. He did, our, did the sound effects because it was real important to me to have the drills sound good. You know, had the sound of the, the whir of the drill and the grind of the dr drill, which I thought was what we were really selling with this movie, you know. So he was, um, but but um, he did it for no money. You know, it's just, it's just amazing. Um, so it was definitely tight. And when I saw the movie, you know, it didn't convince me. You know, when I saw it put together, and then Pierre David actually came up with a couple editing um, fixes, uh, structural fixes that I thought um, that I thought really, really helped the movie. And that's why I say I don't think it would be the movie. That it, I don't think it would have worked the way it does if it wasn't for Pierre David. Yeah, in spite of all the kind of negative things I've said about him, and I don't mean that. I, I think he was a great, I think he contributed greatly, and he uh, really, you know, to the extent that the movie works, you have to give him credit. Um, but yeah, it was a total surprise to me that it, that it worked the way it did. And it wasn't until it started playing and started, and it had, had real success, especially like in Europe, like in France, it was like a top, a top movie for a while. I mean, it, it was a movie that appealed to a much greater audience than than any of my movies ever had, except for say, Honey I Shrunk the Kids. Right? It was a, I mean, it went beyond the horror audience, and so I think that's a, you know, it, that's a winner. Fantastic, right? And uh, from what I understand, part of it you shot at somebody's residential home in Los Angeles. How is that working at somebody's house? 
Uh, well, people rent their houses out for movies all the time. You know, they put them on the, they, you know, they are, there's a listing service. And you, I mean, if you can, if you can get people to shoot at your house, you should do it. Corbin, um, just some years ago, he, you know, he and his wife, who's also an actress, um, flip houses where they did before the pandemic. And so he, you know, I, you know, he'll buy a house and um, fix it up. And he's got the connections to get, get um, productions to come in and rent it. It's good money. You can get it. It's, you know, that's, I wish I could get a production. I, I have rented my house for productions. I rented it for a low budget movie called Reborn, kind of a electric carry that a, that a partner of mine produced, or executive produced. And they shot the whole movie here. It really, Barbara Crampton's in it, uh, Ray Don Chong, or something. Uh, what's the Chaz Mono? I don't know who the other people are, but they shot it while I was still here. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't let them go into my office or my bedroom. And I would honestly, it was like a dream when I was when I started making movies. I'd have these dreams that I was always on a set or in a movie theater, and this was like being in a dream. I would be like talking with you, but if I open the door, people are carrying lights around, you know, and they're setting up a shot, and there's all this bright light coming in, and in the backyard, there are, the extras are eating snacks, you know. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's good money if you can get it. Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for tuning in. Thank you to Brian Usna for joining us this week. And uh, I mean, I guess early thank you again, since we're going to have a part two of this. So uh, <laughs> thank you again for next week, which I'll thank you again, again in the wrap up anyway. So next week we're going to have part two. We're also going to have a review for Prey. <laughs> Prey. <laughs> P-R-E-Y. Uh, P-R-A-Y. The new Predator film. And I can't fucking wait. I, man, I'm excited. Because it looks good. We haven't had a good Predator movie in a while. But I also got hyped for Scream and I was a big goddamn like <laughs> So I got tempered expectations for this. But you don't have to pay to see it at theaters. You get to Fair. sit at home and watch it on Hulu. So, so uh, yeah, we'll have that for you next week as well. Uh, make sure to follow us online. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. I think I got them all in there somewhere. We also have a Discord somewhere join that i'm always posting the link for that uh but uh all those handles are at high on horror 420 you can send us an email at high on horror 420 at gmail.com check out our website high on horror.com you can uh, sign up for our newsletter we'll send you our guest announcements and our latest episodes uh you can also check out our patreon uh jeez there's so much shit online I don't know these if, days, I don't, right? I don't, right, but also, uh, you didn't mention that next week for our part two, we're going to be reviewing Bride of Reanimator. Oh, shit. So we have a Bride of Reanimator I mean, review coming. I feel coming like all I really... And a Prey review coming. So two reviews next week, plus the final the uh, final part of Brian's interview. Stop interrupting me when I'm interrupting you. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I, I didn't even think I needed to say a movie. I just had to say that Brian Houston is going to be here again next week. And I figured Fair that enough. was enough. But uh, yes, Bride of Reanimator. I think I covered all of our social. Yeah. Let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Catch you later. Bye, everybody.